Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what Todd Phillips does for the discourse. I'm Seb Patrick and joining me to give you what you fucking deserve are... Caroline Cedar. Seb, just one small thing. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joe Cun? Joe Cunningham. (laughs) He was desperate to do that. Desperate. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, You can call me Mr. J. Joe, welcome back. Thank you. I say begrudgingly. <laughs> uh, that was a short break from the podcast that you had. Um, what have you been up to in the time since you last appeared? Um, wife had a baby. That happened. She's now seven weeks old um, as of as of this recording, um, and she's great. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you've been there, Seb, for seven weeks. I have. It's mostly. Yes. I mean, not with your baby. But no. Yes. <laughs> Not not physically being here. You mean uh, Seb isn't just your night nurse that comes over every night to <laughs> to take care of the baby? Like Rosario Dawson. I I, I watched her while 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 Joe went to watch Joker. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she's um she's good. It's it's been uh, a bit of a tiring blur. I've literally to go and watch the Joker today was one of two occasions where I've been out of the house not for work or not to take the baby for a walk since she was born so um the other occasion was to watch ad astra so it's it's always the cinema um so so in other words we can't really take any opinion that you have on the film seriously because you were just glad to be out of the house yeah yeah no i was i was thrilled thrilled to be there you you can take all of my opinions through a pinch of salt (laughs) oh and her her name's um evangeline vesper cunningham that's a if anyone if anyone hadn't seen that on social media um a great name I would just, just for, for everyone who's listening who, like when Seb says uh, that Lois wasn't named after, <laughs> I, I promise you was not named after Evangeline Lilly, but um, <laughs> we, she was though. We've, uh, <laughs> we've, we've liked the name for a, for a long time. Let's, let's say it's after Because the, of Evangeline Lilly. Uh, a little, a little <laughs> bit that that's where I first heard the name probably. Uh, also in Princess and the Frog, the star is called Evangeline. Um, yeah, and, do you sing her that song? Uh, we do. Oh, that's <laughs> my, so sweet. My Belle Evangeline. And, uh, and yeah. also the, uh, the Longfellow poem, which we, uh, read a couple of weeks before she was born, kind of nervously hoping that it wasn't massively inappropriate because we were already very connected to the name and, uh, it turns out it's delightful. So... And uh, and Vesper, of course, from James Bond. Uh, my wife will tell you that that is definitely, definitely not the case, and I will agree. <laughs> it, um, uh, Vesper also means evening star, which kind of ties in with the Evangeline yes, as well. So, um, yes. yeah, that's where that came from. 
so yeah um so yeah we've got you back joe uh, we've got you back because uh, james actually ran away to new york to escape having to do joker <laughs> yeah. he was that keen not to see it uh and obviously caroline welcome back again thank you happy to be here uh so we'll get the the american perspective you got to go and see the film uh in a in a theater in a country with much more relaxed gun laws than us yep. um, so, and i thought about yeah. it the entire time as to yeah. be honest i do every time i see a movie so yep mm. that's the reality being an american so we are going to discuss uh, the film, Todd Phillips's 2019 film Joker and various associated controversies around it. Uh, as per usual, because it's a new release, uh, we'll do a little bit of spoiler-free chat just to give you our opinions if you haven't got to seeing it yet so that you can hear what we thought and then turn off and then go and see it or not, as the case may be, and then hear our spoilery opinions. We don't normally do news on new release episodes, but there is quite a bit to talk about and quite a bit that it, w- it would be far too long to wait for it if we waited for James to get back from New York and do it. So I demanded it. <laughs> uh, so we are going to do a little bit of news, but before any of that, and I had to do that as a Joe impression because uh, he's actually here for once, <laughs> um, I'm going to ask Joe and or Caroline if either of them have anything that they would like explaining by me, a DC Comics expert, about the Joker. I have one. I'm just curious about, like, how was the Joker, how and when was the Joker first introduced? Uh, Really, really early. Uh, He, I don't know if it's, I think it might well be, and I'm going to stall for time while I literally look this up (laughs) to confirm. I should know it. Uh, but I believe it is actually in Batman issue one, which obviously isn't the first appearance of Batman um, because he'd first appeared in Detective Comics, but he, but Batman appeared in Detective Comics in 1939, got his own series, Batman, in 1940. And yes, it is issue one uh, from April 1940 of the Batman series. Um, and he's introduced in a way that I think, I'm not sure that there are many characters that are, as fully formed in terms of like what they would be for the rest of their careers as the Joker is when he first appears. Like, you know, Batman, if you read Detective Comics 27 or even if you read Batman number one, it is not as recognisable a Batman as the Joker is the Joker. He is just there. There is no explanation for him. And that's crucial as well, because in those early days, usually a character would get introduced and you'd get their origin. And that's not the case with the Joker. He's brought in, he's the villain of the story, he shows up as somebody who basically starts appearing on the radio uh, saying that various wealthy people are going to die at at like midnight that night, and they do, because he's done various things like poisoning them and arranged other ways for them to die. Um, And That's like uh, The Dark Knight, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And almost everything that you would think of as being recognisable with the Joker in terms of the look of him, the purple suit, um, the mix of the macabre with the kind of the black humour. I mean, he's not massively jokey. He's got the grin. Um, But really, it's all there. I mean, like, in all of the time since, the only thing that's really been added to him was in the... It's either... I think it's in the early 50s. They give him his origin. And I do say origin in inverted commas because it still doesn't tell you who he really was as a person. But that's when you get the Red Hood backstory and the story of him having been a, a villain called the Red Hood who fell into some chemicals when he was being chased by Batman and transformed into the Joker. That was added in the 50s. And aside from that, and aside from the killing joke, whether or not you want to take that as an origin for him or not, 
Um, you know, the fundamentals of the Joker have remained exactly the same since 1940, which just shows what a strong concept and what a, what a, a memorable image he was when he was first introduced. Is the idea of him disliking rich people, is that sort of like a cornerstone of the character? Not really, no, no. Okay, just in that um, first issue, though. Uh, that just was... in that first story, okay. I think. No, he's he. There are there are no prejudices in. I mean, I, equally, I wouldn't say that he necessarily uh, ever empathizes or sides with rich people. And there's a fantastic uh, in Grant Morrison's run, uh, the Batman R.I.P. story. Um, the the core thread of that story is an incredibly rich organization called the Black Glove, um, who basically every year as sport. Uh, arrange events in order to take down somebody and in this particular year it's Batman and they enlist the Joker um, to kind of help with their plans Um, and you get various moments where he's just completely dismissive of them and everything that they stand for it's like it suits his ends to work with them to mess with Batman but equally he doesn't have any respect for them whatsoever you know the Joker has been incredibly rich at various points just by virtue of stealing a lot of money and he's probably also lost or destroyed as much money you know that that great bit in in Dark Knight with him setting fire to the pile of money is a very Jokerish moment money is a means to an end it's not he's not interested in power and money in that sense um so the 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 more kind of deliberate visceral hatred of the rich capital t capital r um is something that i think is more specific to this movie than a a character trait of his Mm -hmm. okay so i've got two questions first um why so serious (laughs) i'll I'll let you stew on that one and come back to it um two to like we've done the start of the joker more recently what's come of all of that three joker stuff have we got anywhere with that yet uh everything went quiet on that for a while um because that's kind of a fun that is a fundamental shift to the joker paradigm isn't it that you're saying yes actually saying that there have been three jokers yeah um although even then it's is you're talking about playing with alternate universes because effectively that's what you know dc is um the problem that you've had there is that jeff johns uh took a different job at dc slash warners and seems to have not had much time to actually write comics and that's why shazam has been incredibly delayed issue to issue and that's why doomsday clock has been incredibly delayed issue to doomsday clock when it started like nearly two years ago i think um, the idea was that it was supposed to be taking place in the very near future of DC. So all of DC's comics were going to build up to some of the events that happen in Doomsday Clock. And then it's come out so slowly that um, they've had to pretty much abandon that as an idea because all of the comics can't wait for it. Has, and it's he, a similar thing um, with- has he thought about letting someone else write these comics? You'd think, but yeah. Um, So Three Jokers is a Jeff Johns thing, and Three Jokers is being worked on. It's now been shifted. It's going to be a a mini-series in the Black Label imprint, which is this new prestige format that dc have come up with for kind of um you know older readers comics in the in this weird sort of square format it's where batman damned the famous comic with the batwang uh was was the first one out of the blocks uh we've had superman year one by frank miller and john remitter jr is going on at the moment uh there's a harley quinn one there's another joker one coming up three jokers is going to be one of those and very tellingly Um, there was a comment by the artist on Twitter, literally only probably in the last week or so, where he commented something along the lines of, it will be up to readers to determine whether the events of it 
are actually in continuity or not. Okay. Uh, so basically, because of the delays and because of Jeff Johns, Jeff Johns really isn't involved, I think, in the kind of ongoing, the wider structure of DC at the moment. I think since Brian Michael Bendis came in, he, it's not like he's had total control, but I think there's been an editorial shift. A lot of stuff has been built around what he's been doing and what he's interested mm. in. Um, and that three jokers thing, I, I don't think we're ever going to see now an official incontinuity setup where there are actually three jokers. The only thing might be if Scott Snyder, who was the writer of Batman for several years in the New 52, currently writing Justice League and who's created a character called uh, the Batman who laughs from Dark Knight Metal, who's been very relevant to their kind of current event, which is called the Year of the Villain. Um, it feels like something that Snyder might pick up. If he was to pick it up, it could become integral because he's still very integral to DC at the moment. Um, and he, he worked closely with Jeff Johns on a number of things. Um, it, but if he doesn't bother to pick it up, nobody else will, Cause, basically. Uh, am I right? Because I'm remembering from when I read that that DC Rebirth issue. The idea is that what one of them is kind of your traditional idea of the Joker, one of them is the killing joke Joker, and one of them is the death in the family joker i think death of so. the family yeah. I, I always get those two confused yeah De- uh, death of the family yeah. yeah death of the family the snyder, the snyder, the one. snyder yeah. one yeah 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 okay uh yeah that seems right but then looking at the cover art that's been put out for the black label book the the jason Fabok cover it's hard to tell which of them is which for me there's one that is a kind of old-fashioned one one that looks killing joke but then the one that's i guess is modern in inverted commas he doesn't look like the scott snyder greg capullo version uh probably because i guess they've kind of moved on from that i mean the joker hasn't been in comics much recently uh, he was he has been in Tom King's Batman run, but he hasn't been a, a key feature of it, mm. apart from in the interminable War of Jokes and Riddles storyline. Um, yeah, I kind of like what you said there about that. There might be, uh, you know, leave it up to the reader to decide whether it's in continuity or not, because hmm. that's the most fun thing about the Joker, isn't it? As we as, yeah. as, as we said <laughs> lots of times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that that would seem to add an extra wrinkle to that. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that whatever was originally intended for it, it is not going to be the case now. So, yeah, Fair forward enough. planning there. And have you thought about my first question? Have we just 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 because you you tire me out, Joe? That's, <laughs> that's why I'm so serious. <laughs> also, I've I've been a parent for four and a half years now. You'll understand it in a few years. <laughs> I can't wait till we get to the Joker segment of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Because we really do have to talk about some of this news. Um, and let's start with the big one. Um, and I'm, I find it interesting that it's you two who I've got on, on this episode. Because I think you're the two people who maybe were the least bothered about the previous status quo of this situation. Yeah. Uh, but the long and short of it is that Spider-Man is coming back to the MCU after all. Uh, they sat down around a table. Tom Holland got them by the scruffs of the necks. He got them <laughs> around the table. He bashed their heads together and he said, sort this out, guys, because I really want to be back in the MCU. Yeah. Um, so I think what we know at the moment is that there is definitely going to be... Uh, the Well, we knew there was definitely going to be a third Spider-Man film, but it is going to be... Uh, co-produced by Kevin Feige and um, have they actually said that there is going to be at least one yeah. MCU film that will have Spider-Man in? One one Spider-Man film, one MCU film featuring Spider-Man. Yeah. That's the that's the kind of the minimum. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what do you think? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's good. I'm glad, you know, I think a lot of people were upset by this, so I'm glad that they got a happy resolution. I still think that even if he's officially in the MCU canon, it it would be cool to see the third Spider-Man movie not feel compelled to do as much franchise tie-in. Yeah. Yes. Because I think that sometimes drags down the Spider-Man world. So particularly, I Agreed. think the way the second one really emphasized Happy Hogan, like that we just don't mm. need that. We don't need Happy Hogan to be... I mean, I'm sure be... that um, John Favreau was punching the air when this was yeah. announced because he was like, I get a bit more time with Aunt May. But I think the rest of us were like, look, we love you, John, but maybe we don't need to see you in the next we one. We just don't need Peter Parker to have 27 different father figures, you know? Like, we got it. <laughs> He's got a bunch of them. Now let's make Aunt May, who should be the central parental figure in this series let's make her the parental figure so i think it's good it gives them more wiggle room to to not have to awkwardly write around things but i think it wouldn't be a bad idea for them to you know take a lesson from this and try to make spider-man a little bit more of an individual franchise as well i get i guess it might be that they'll take the opportunity to make spider-man less dependent because this could still happen again i mean i I don't Mm. think it will but that but i think they've now been shown the possibility that they might have to make films with spider-man more detached from the mcu and i think we can probably all agree as much as as you know as you guys have talked about you would like to see it kind of stand on its own feet i think we can all agree that the circumstances of going from a film that was so heavily rooted and so heavily rooted particularly in the events of infinity war uh, an end game to have to immediately without any warning and without any groundwork being laid to immediately cut off i think could have created uh, problems narratively i kind I of think at least now that a bit exhilarating though you know like <laughs> I, I, when when i um when i heard this news uh that you know that it all was well and it was going back i i was surprised i surprised myself because my immediate reaction was ah Okay, I thought that was going to be your reaction, yeah. But but, more, but <laughs> not me. not because I didn't like Far From Home, and not because I mean because we we don't. I mean, you no, didn't like Far From Home. Let's not forget. No, I, di- I didn't like Far From Home, and I, and I'm kind of lukewarm on Homecoming. Um, I like Tom Holland, and I like uh, his Peter Parker Spider Man, um, and I've liked him in the in the MCU movies that aren't Spider Man as well. But yeah, the it it didn't. It's it's never really got me hugely excited, and yeah, I kind of did. I, I kind of when Spider Man was swinging through the streets of New York at the end of um, Far From Home, and J.K. Simmons is on the big screen, and I'm going, oh yeah, like that is the Spider Man movie I want to see, and I think you you can you can make that movie in the MCU, and you can make that movie completely disconnected from the mcu i think the mcu is stronger for having the ability to drop spider-man into its other movies definitely but i was kind of i I was kind of excited to see how they were going to have to deal with it because the things that i like about about this status quo of spider-man would still have been around in a sony movie and I'd I'd have been excited to see you know how how they pulled it off and you know it might have been a complete car crash but the the unknown element of that was more exciting to me than certainly from a between the two movies point of view it's probably going to be a better movie for being in the MCU uh, and for having Kevin Feige's hand on it but it's not going to be quite as exciting in this next year or two between you know this announcement and the movie showing up because. 
we know that the the kind of the element of chaos has been removed and i was quite looking forward to that element of chaos um <laughs> yeah, so yeah i, I think that. it's it's probably it's probably a good thing overall um because you, i mean you can't deny like just just remembering those little spider-man moments in infinity war and endgame and his introduction mm. in civil war i've loved all of that stuff I, th- I think we even said it at the time of the original news that, yeah, I think it's always felt like the bigger loss was him in that stuff rather than that stuff in his films. Yeah, and I, and I would, but I would love, like, uh, I don't know, them to get Marcus and McFeely in to write the next Spider-Man movie. That would, because mm. um, uh, me and James have had this argument before. He's like, why not just let the Russos direct everything with Spider-Man in? And I'm like, no, let's get Marcus and McFeely to write all of his stuff. Because yeah. they feel like they get it, and it, you know, it would be nice for that next movie to have a director. I don't know whether this means John Watts is returning, but <laughs> yeah. Um, so all in all, I mean, I'm I'm just mainly I've, I've, I just think it's funny because obviously the the way the cycle has gone, you know, the first part was it's not happening, um, and I think we approached that first iteration of the cycle. We we talked about it with the view of. Well, let's not talk about it as if it's definitely not happening, because obviously it'll get sorted. And then it became, it's definitely not happening. It was like, wow, we have to actually talk about it as if it's definitely not happening and lose that feeling that it might all get sorted. And then it all got sorted. Mm. So the middle step was irrelevant. But yeah, it's been an interesting ride. It's given us something to talk about. uh, And basically the status quo now is pretty much exactly what it was before. But maybe, as I say, with that, that feeling that maybe they'll actually consider a bit more what the pattern, what the picture will be going forwards and maybe reduce that reliance. I will just so. throw one little extra extra thing into this. Kevin Feige is going to be a very busy man. He is overseeing mm. all of these MCU movies. He's overseeing the Disney Plus TV stuff. He's This is an extra movie to add to his slate, which is going to be made, what, in... Uh, it's probably going to be released within 18 to 20 months from now. Um, and, and he's doing a Star Wars. So... <laughs> That's a lot. I wonder whether he needs to start thinking about like a a, a little consigliere who can <laughs> work alongside him on all of this stuff. Are you, are you offering yourself for the job, John? <laughs> John, like... John Favreau, take him off screen and. St- <laughs> I know, but if you give the job to John Favreau, he's going to just have himself with Aunt May in like every single <laughs> in movie. every movie. <laughs> this is kind of a bigger I mean, question. Would, I have it? like, you know, it's easy to be like to give Kevin Feige credit for all these things, but obviously he's not you know, in the room for all of these decisions. I'm just very curious about how that actually works. I'm particularly curious in this case, like, I don't know if we have the full story of, of who was playing hardball here. Like, was it Marvel mm. or was it Sony? You know what I mean? Like, I think I, I'm curious to unpack all of that. And there if this is was a... like a power play by Sony. Well, or, if, it's, you know... if it's Marvel, it's Bob Iger rather than rather than Feige. It's, the, it's the, you know, the Walt Disney Corporation. And I, I think probably when it comes to this level of decision, it's not Feige, but mm. I, but I think he does have incredible sway and influence, and I think the that you know the whole reason why Spider Man is part of the MCU in the first place, as we found out from all of those leaked emails, is that Kevin Feige put in the hard yards with Amy Pascal, building that relationship and saying, look, we want to work with you, we want to make this happen, like let's let's all get on the same side here, and then when the when the emails took down Pascal, they managed to outside of that system put together the spider-man franchise it, it, you know in in the mcu and I, I i think he does have an incredible you gotta remember he's the sole producer on all of these movies when black panther was nominated for the oscar every other movie that has three or four names under it black panther has kevin feige 
I think he is in, in, incredibly powerful, incredibly influential. And while I think that he wouldn't have been the one playing hardball with Sony, he could have been the one that went to Bob Iger and went, it's not worth that extra percentage point. I, 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 want, I, I think that what we're going to be doing is much stronger for having this here. That's the, that's the direction in which I think he could have influenced things, but I don't think we'll ever know. Just as regards the the you know the what actually happened, um, this is this is reporting from a website that is known for you know take with a pinch of salt sometimes with comics related stuff, but also that has a lot of inside sources and does often get things on. So take this with a pinch of salt, but this is what's reported by Bleeding Cool, uh, which is the story is that it's all down to Alan Horn at Disney. Um, and it was down to Alan Horn screwing it up because he didn't understand the rights situation. Yeah. Uh, so what's said here is, um, th- I'm told the Disney gossip is that Disney's Alan Horn had got the situation with the rights all backwards in his head, that he somehow thought that Disney was licensing Spider-Man to Sony to use and not that Sony held the rights. So when Sony didn't agree to that demanded new deal, the 50-50 deal that was talked about, Horn told them that Disney wouldn't allow them to use Spider-Man anymore, totally ignorant to the rights situation, and Sony said, fine. Cue the involvement of Kevin Feige, who did know the score and was brought in to negotiate directly with Sony instead of Horn and sort everything out. I mean, that just and sounds re- mental, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, well, it does this sound mental, is why we were but... <laughs> talking about this off mic, but this is why I like the TV show, TV show Succession, because it shows you that the people making these big power decisions yeah. oftentimes don't actually know what they're doing. I mean, I was listening to um, uh, another podcast, Fighting in the War Room, this week, and Bob Iger's just um, published... Um, his uh, autobiography um, and so, p- talking kind of particularly about the last decade at Disney and his role in bringing in Pixar and then Star Wars and Marvel and and it sounds like there's some fascinating gossip from it but central to it was that basically he was supposed to be retiring from the role last year um, and was considering a run for president and then he went and had a sit down with Rupert Murdoch who said look I want to sell you guys Fox on the condition that you don't run for president <laughs> and that you and that you stay in the you stay in this role, and Iger thinks that it was because um, because Murdoch didn't want this like lefty with a lot of influence and the, and you know and the Disney history behind him to be running for president potentially against Trump. <laughs> I just like wow, yeah, no, yeah, we it is succession. We just don't realize it. <laughs> well, we'll move on because we do have. Uh... We've got, still got to get through other stuff in this supposedly truncated news segment. Uh, but <laughs> thanks once again to Disney and Sony for giving us fodder for a new section. Um, all worked out happily in the end. Um, bring us on to something that's actually kind of relevant to the film that we're about to discuss. Because I don't know about you guys, uh, but I got shown this trailer before my screening of Joker. Ooh. Uh, the trailer the for Birds of Prey and mm-hmm. the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Or Did as we're now, get it? Well, now we're being able to call it Bop. Which I'm finding delightful. <laughs> I just saw lots of well, bop, bop, bop on my Twitter feed, and I was like, "What is that?" And then I worked it out, and I was like, "That's much more helpful. Thank you very much." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think from the looks of it, um, it's very much the Harley Quinn part of the title that we're supposed to be paying attention to, at least based on the first trailer. Yeah. I mean, I I do think I I don't think that's necessarily as reflective of the film as it is a very deliberate and specific piece of marketing for the first trailer. For the first trailer to be the one that says to you, this is what Harley Quinn did next. And I would suspect that in later ones, we're going to see more of all of the other characters. Um, But even with that, what did you guys think of the trailer? I think it looks great. 
and it is that, isn't it? It's the it's the Harley Quinn show, and more than if you said to me, "Oh, the, that first trailer leans heavily on Harley," I would have gone, "Okay, yeah, no, I would expect that," and then saw the trailer and gone, "Oh, whoa, no, it really leans hard on Harley." <laughs> like it is, it's Harley Quinn. Even when even when the credits block shows up on screen, it goes Margot Robbie hold. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Jenny Smollett, Bell, Rosie Paris, Christina, yeah, and, and you're like, whoa, okay. It's it, it it's entirely her movie from this trailer, and I agree with you. I would be surprised if it is this heavy, but also based on this trailer, if it if it is this heavy, Harley Quinn, and it is essentially a Harley Quinn movie that the Birds of Prey just happened to be in, based on the strength of this, then fine, that would be fine. <laughs> she she's mm. like. I mean, uh, Caroline, I think the thing that we agreed on from Suicide Squad was Will Smith and Margot Robbie were fantastic. And yep. this is one half of that all over again. Uh, a sh- shed of all of the bad stuff. And hopefully the the stuff that they've added around to this time is stronger than Jared Leto and Jai Courtney. <laughs> yeah, I think it looks great. She gets to wear pants, which is really exciting. Uh, and not be in her underwear, so I'm pro that. I think, you know, I had actually heard that the trailer was so centric to her before I saw it, and within that context, I was like, oh, no, they are showing the other... Like, I actually thought it was less focused on her than I expected, because hearing that, I was like, oh, maybe they don't even show the other women. But there is a scene where she's like, I wasn't the only dame in Gotham who needed to get emancipated, and they sort of cut to all the other women. But I think it makes sense, right? From a marketing point of view, we don't... It's not really the trailer's job to introduce us to these characters. The movie will do that. Mm. Um, and, oh, my only complaint is that I think Ewan McGregor is doing an American accent. And oh, which is always mistake. an issue. I don't know why. Why was that choice made? <laughs> this was not good. Reshoots. We need to do some reshoots and let him either use his actual Scottish accent or his, like, decent British accent that he does a lot, too. He looks good though that was because that oh, was yeah. i was i mean when does he not yeah well we were we were having this uh conversation during the week as well about about you mcgregor i kind of said like you I, I sometimes forget how much i should appreciate you mcgregor and i think that's because as uh, as we kind of discovered when we delved into his imdb he makes a lot of shit he turns up in a <laughs> lot of bad movies um, and it'll turn up in stuff and you'll just miss that it's happened. And suddenly four or five years will go by and you'll realise, I haven't seen a, a Ewan McGregor in a new movie for that long. But him showing up in something of this size is hopefully a reminder. And then when you do go through his filmography, he's got like a solid, because he makes films so regularly, he's got like a solid ten great four to five star movies in there. Um you and I, we lead very different lives because I feel like I'm constantly thinking about you <laughs> and how talented he is. So I'm really not connecting to this idea of not not him not being a part of my life constantly. So um, one thing I did want to mention for this trailer, it looks like we have got like uh, like fancy sequences from Harley based on based on the kind of the the stage showy bit in the trailer yeah, and just the, the way Monroe. that. And the way that the transition works, it looks like we're going in, inside her head. Um, and I thought it felt very Tank Girl, which is interesting because it was it was rumoured a while back that she'd kind of optioned Tank Girl as a mm. as a project, a, a Tank Girl remake as a project for her to star in. And for me, it felt very on the nose. And I was like, well, I feel like I'm already seeing that in Harley Quinn. And now I really am seeing that in Harley Quinn. And, and it looks great. Yeah. 
I think I think I think Tank Girl meets Deadpool is the is the feel I get. There was something about I think I think whatever whatever relationship she's going to have with Cassandra and that little bit at the end with the dynamite, uh, which I thought was the best bit of the trailer actually, but it really gave me a Deadpool vibe. Um, so you know, again, I think they're leaning into the fact that DC in general have sort of steered Harley towards being their version of Deadpool in recent years. Mm. And I will say, just to go back to Caroline's point around she's wearing pants this time, I, what I think is really interesting is obviously it costume looks to be something that has been given a lot of attention in this movie. And it shows you how crucial the the gaze of a movie is. Because I remember having this argument with um, people at the time with Wonder Woman and Suicide Squad when they came out quite close to each other. And someone says... Oh well, there's a shot where you can see like Wonder Woman's ass in in uh, in slow motion in Wonder Woman. I was like, well, I I don't remember that, and I guess maybe if I go back and watch it, I can't. In fact, it was around the depiction of Wonder Woman in Justice League compared to yeah, Wonder yeah. Woman. Yeah. And you look at this trailer, and Harley is wearing, you know, it, it, yeah, in some scenes she's wearing pants. Uh, in another one, she is riding a stripper pole. Uh, in another one, she's doing that low angle kick that Wonder Woman does in Suicide Squad. She's wearing short little denim shorts at one point, but the gaze feels entirely different and it doesn't at any point in this trailer to me feel lechy or uncomfortable or like it is infantilizing her for for my male audience pleasure. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully that is reflective of the film as well. And, I, you know, because all of them... When you see that group shot and Harley's got the big hammer and they're, you know, it, it looks like they're facing off with, with some of the villains. And they all look fantastic, but they look sexy in a way that doesn't feel skeevy. And I think, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that. And that's why it's important that not all of your DC movies are directed by David Ayers and... Um, uh, Zack Zach Snyder. Snyder. God, isn't it good that I almost forgot his name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't had to talk about him for a while. Let's keep it that way. Um, I do one other thing, just to, just briefly on on McGregor in this is that I, you know, I, I think he's going to be much better and more interesting than Jared Leto's Joker. But it did kind of feel from this trailer like they're using that character to play a not dissimilar role in terms of being. Uh, the guy who has this, for whatever reason, sense of ownership over Harley. There was a moment where he shouted, where he's shouting, like I think he shouts like "You need me" or something, and it's like, um, you know, that that could be the Joker, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so so great they found um, they found a way to replicate that relationship without having to without necessarily someone us again. Yeah. <laughs> um and yeah, I don't think we're going to see him with a black skull, but I think we got some hints of the way that the black skull imagery will be used around him and sort of for his kind of, you know, it's it's his gangstery shtick. He just doesn't literally have a black skull face. And I know we've seen it before uh, in in the first trailer and the first images but Christmasina looks fantastic as Victor says I love yeah. I love the bleach blonde hair and the gum chewing and yeah he's he's got an energy to him I love Christmasina and I'm glad that I'm glad that he's shown up in this he's got I'm, Christmas I'm in his that, name that, but it's not so like that, I'm glad that Zaz is in it because I mean even though it's still the only I think, think he's still the only one that's been done but character created um, from like one of my favourite Batman runs which is the um, Alan Grant John Wagner and Norm Brayfogle run 
um, Zaz was created by them. So Does he show maybe up in... we'll get the ventriloquist next time. Yes, he is in. It's either Begins or Dark Knight. I think it's Dark yeah. Knight, and he is played by uh, Tim Booth out of the band James. Ah, okay, and he's in. He's in yeah. Gotham as well. But everyone's in Gotham. Oh, is he? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Right, uh, so just one other little bit of news to round up. Um, and again, it's just I, I couldn't really let this pass without having commented on it on the podcast um, because, as I said at the time, when, when it broke about a week or so ago, uh, I'd actually just been off work with a bad cold um, and so wasn't in any position to record a podcast. If I was in a position to record a podcast, I probably would have just gone on my own and recorded an hour-long minisode purely on the subject of Brandon Routh's costume for the Crisis on, on Infinite <laughs> Earths TV crossover because I have absolutely no hesitation in saying that it is the best Superman costume that has ever been created for live action screen use without question it's just, it's perfect Um, it's, it's a great representation of the Kingdom Come costume. I mean, it's just it's just so screen accurate, dead on. But with those quirks and tweaks that you know that make things work for live action, like it's got that more textured look. It's a bit thicker. the The S shield is actually kind of a kind of plate piece. Um, but it's just um, it's Superman, and it's it's Brandon. I mean, you know, Brandon Routh was a great Superman. But if you look at pictures of him in the Superman Returns costume, you know. He was a little bit young when he was cast, and that costume wasn't great. And in retrospect, you look at pictures of him now, and as good as I think he was, he didn't really maybe look as much like Superman as he should have done. But you look at him in that picture, and I'm just... That's a picture of Superman. Right. It's just, I it's wanna, just wonderful. <laughs> I want to put this appeal out to our listeners. I don't know whether you guys can help me, help me with this. I've stared at that picture for ages and gone... It, I know that's Brandon Ralph. I understand that's Brandon Ralph. It doesn't look like Brandon Ralph, and it doesn't look like Brandon Ralph because it looks like someone else. If it looks like Superman, but if someone could explain <laughs> to me who the other person is that I'm thinking of, that would it's be like fantastic. A bit, it's like a little bit Timothy Dalton. Hmm. Uh, a little bit. I mean, it is. It is also a bit Christopher Reeve because he looks like yeah. Christopher Reeve. <laughs> there is something about the like the first official photo they released there it is sort of oddly his face do, i agree that his face doesn't look like his face normally is the, does mm. and that's and that's posed. the one that i i need someone to identify for me because i, I kind of know what you're crazy. getting at. yeah and he's got the little reed richardsy um yeah yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Which, which again yeah. is from kingdom come i mean the interesting thing here though is like obviously he's wearing that costume but I don't think he's playing what you could call the Kingdom Come Superman, and this partly ties to the other photo that we've had of him, which is a photo of him as Clark Kent, um, with a sign on the door of the Daily Planet that says Clark Kent, Editor-in-Chief. And this, to me, ties into the Crisis version of Superman that he's obviously playing, because in Crisis on Infinite Earths, you've got um, the Earth-1 Superman, who's the current present-day Superman, and you've got the Earth-2 Superman, who's the version who's been around since the 1940s, and in, in, in the Earth-2 timeline, he's older, he's become editor-in-chief of the Daily Planet, um, and so I, I kind of think, I mean, the, the way that they're denoted in that comic is the older Superman has the grain temples, and his S logo is a bit more kind of, cr- it looks more obviously like an S, it's a bit more kind of crudely drawn. I still feel my expectation is that this Brandon Routh Superman will not have the Kingdom Come character's backstory, i.e. that 
Lois Lane and the various other um, Daily Planet uh, staffers were all murdered by the Joker, um, and then he got replaced by newer, more modern heroes who were willing to kill, and then he retired from public life, because if that was the case, he wouldn't be editor of the Daily Planet, he wouldn't be Clark Kent anymore. Well, I'm um, gonna, I'm I gonna think they're this... just using this costume as a, as a way of denoting that he is a different, older Superman, that's what my feeling is. I'm going to throw this out there, and uh, I apologise to Caroline if this is uh, offensive to someone who is still way more invested in these shows than me. <laughs> the the plot particularly of these crossovers doesn't matter and seb i think all that you the, the extent of what you're going to get yeah, out I of this I'm crossover giving you more backstory than the yeah, show will give but it, it, it like what you are going to get in terms of the joy from this is that first official image and then like the gift that comes of his first appearance on screen in that costume yeah. because uh, like in much the same way as when they put john wesley ship actually properly yes, in yes exactly costume. yeah and th- those shows for moments and particularly from the crossovers i've watched your brain starts to melt after about half an hour of the first episode because there's so many of these like silly plot heavy worlds being thrown together all at the same time and it's just it's a struggle to keep up and the joy is is just like oh barry allen's hanging out with um with supergirl again or i don't know that that character from legends of tomorrow has actually got great chemistry with that supporting character from uh, I, I don't know, Batwoman this year, maybe. Who knows? Um, that's the fun of it. Caroline, am I wrong? <laughs> no, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. Plus, we have to factor in that like Brandon Routh is on Legends of Tomorrow as well, so there's a whole other thing of like how is he playing two characters? You know what I mean? I feel like that would be the backstory they lean on to more. Have multiple people playing two characters? Because they've got... Um, uh, you'll have to remind me of her name, but Smallville Lois... Um, Erica Durance. Yeah, um, but she's on Supergirl. Yeah, but this is but Legends of Tomorrow is within this universe. You know what I mean? Smallville yeah. is just that's like an inside casting. This is like Brandon mm. Routh. Is oh playing... no, but the point, what what I'm saying is though she is playing Lois in the crossover. Oh, is she? Her, oh, I have yeah, missed yeah. that. Because oh, that's okay. the other thing. There is a photo of Tom Welling and Erica Durant as Clark and Lois in oh. on the farm in Smallville. So she is playing Lois in the crossover while also playing Allura on Supergirl. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So there's a lot for them. To- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like that will be their focus more than fleshing out the detailed backstories. I think the focus will probably be more on, hey, why do you look just like, you know, my friend from this other world? Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll have a great gag already written. Yeah, um, one person who isn't returning, and we we again we talked about this when we were, when we were talking about these crossovers last time. Uh, I was saying that obviously with them having got Tom Welling and, and Erica Durant, that surely they must be looking at getting Michael Rosenbaum in somehow. Uh, Michael Rosenbaum has said stated quite definitively, and actually, okay, so I saw the headline. Michael Rosenbaum says that he's refused to do it, and I interpreted that as one of these situations where someone is doing it, but they want to keep it secret. Um, so you'll get a nice surprise appearance. And my feeling was, oh, yeah, he's definitely going to show up somehow. And then I read his actual statement on Twitter, which is where he said, uh, I'll just be straight up about this. Warner Brothers called my agents Friday afternoon when I was in Florida visiting my grandfather in a nursing home. Their offer, no script, no idea what I'm doing, no idea when I'm shooting, basically no money, and the real kick in the ass, we have to know now. My simple answer was pass. I think you can understand why. Uh, so I guess he isn't doing it in that case. And <laughs> I imagine there's other members of the Smallville cast who also won't be doing it for reasons. Well, yes, but let's mm. not go into that. 
<laughs> um, so Caroline, I mean, again, I think we talked before that you know maybe want to get your your perspective on this because you are a, a fan of these shows. Uh, what's what's your? And we talked to uh, Steve last time, who's all, who's also a fan on on what his feeling on the shows are generally. What's what's your perspective at the moment? What what are you following? What are you keeping up with? What are you looking forward to in the crossover? Yeah, I was really impressed because he seems to keep up with all of them, whereas I really only keep up with Supergirl, <laughs> and that's because it's my job to keep up with Supergirl. Um, I. I have so much affection for this universe. I, in particular, have so much affection for Supergirl, and I'm really excited for this crossover. Um, you asked last episode about how hard it is to just jump in as a new person on mm. on these. So, from my perspective on that, I think I agree with what Steve said that it's it's um, they it, particularly the most recent one they tended to be more standalone in their plotting. But I do think if you don't already know the worlds of the show, it is a little bit tricky to jump in because each sort of episode of the crossover, it's generally like, here's the sort of Supergirl flavored one. Here's the Flash flavored one. Here's the, you know, Arrow flavored one. And when it's when they go into Supergirl and Flash, which are the two worlds I know well, I'm like, oh, this is so fun. And then they go into Arrow, which I haven't really watched. And I'm like, okay, now I'm just lost with this. So I think knowing a little bit about each show is the ideal way to watch the crossover. And if you don't know anything about them, I mean, definitely give it a shot and check it out. But I think that is the part that's trickier, just not knowing the characters and their dynamics. Oh, I'm completely out. Uh, Not through through choice, because I did, I was still probably enjoying like Supergirl and Flash particularly. There's just so many of them and there's so little time. And I just... If I if I've got spare time in an evening now, I I put a movie on instead of a TV show. So <laughs> that's it. I I will definitely be giving Crisis a look. Yeah. So. Just mainly for Brandon Routh, to be honest. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I think one character who probably isn't going to be showing up in the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover is the Joker. And did you see what I did there with a the brilliant? Yeah, segue? really good into our let's just for a before we play in the trailer before we take our break um let's just do a kind of very very quick top line our feelings on joker um i'd say there's not much point having a long spoiler free section um but let's just uh, as a a tease give those kind of initial reactions especially because i'm really interested i don't know at this point how joe felt about the film uh so caroline what did you Mm -hmm. think I think that the Joker is an interesting, as interesting an experiment as Patrick Willems' YouTube video that's like, what if Wes Anderson directed the X-Men? Fun (laughs) three-minute watch. This is what if Martin Scorsese directed a Joker movie? Fun three-minute watch when it was a trailer, and the experience of watching the movie is just that, but longer. So, you know, it's, I see what it was doing. I probably didn't need to watch it for two hours. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I mostly honestly feel like neutral on it. I don't have strong opinions one way or the other. I, I think I I think there are some things that obviously we'll get into, which is for the good of the podcast, I have strong opinions about certain things about it. Uh but I yeah, I think my over my overall coming out of it, yeah, I, I think neutral is probably um I think there are things that I was worried about, which you'll know from listening to the podcast, which I actually think turned out not to really be a problem at all. I think there are other things that are problems, um, but my main feeling is it's just not as interesting as I hoped it would be, and I don't think it's as clever as it thinks it is, and I think that's its biggest failing. Joe? 
Yeah, so to to put a little bit of context on this, Seb, you and I have basically been at polar opposites when we have been discussing <laughs> the uh, the discourse around this film. So uh, Seb and James and I still chat on WhatsApp fairly regularly and mostly about nerdy shit like this. And um, in, in with almost everything that came around the discourse for this movie, Seb and I clashed. Um, and 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 James, to be fair, I mean, like, I mean, James, to the extent that he doesn't even want to see this movie because he just is so tired of all the stuff that's around it. Um, I, I just, I, I wanted to see it before I had kind of any opinion on it, and I was, I was kind of thinking, like, I, I kind of feel like at this point, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like it more than most people because it, it had this, you know, it had this great early reaction. It's subdued somewhat, but I actually think that there, there are still you know yesterday when all the new reviews came out in in the UK there was still lots of lots of positive new reviews from people who hadn't seen it um at fitness where it won the golden lion um and about an hour into this movie i'm thinking fantastic seb and i are going to get to have a right old ding dong on the podcast and <laughs> by the time i got to the end i was kind of like um and former podcast michael leader whose thoughts on this you can hear on the little white lies truth and movies podcast which i listened to earlier today um we're kind of on the same page fuck this movie i I just by by the time i got what a twist i was so like so frustrated the final 20 minutes had me tearing my hair out and I, I, I and I, the thing that frustrated me the most was from the little that Seb did reveal on our WhatsApp thread about what he thought about the movie. I think we agree almost fucking entirely, <laughs> and that's the most annoying thing. <laughs> We're not going to get to have our big fight about it. <laughs> and Seb Seb has referenced a moment in the movie which uh, was that which is like, oh, has the movie just done something super interesting? And then in the next t- scene, you go. Oh no, no, it hasn't. And actually, and that is the point at which I started to go, oh, all of the things that I was giving this movie credit for, all of the things that I was liking about the direction it was pointing in, are, are falling away. And they fell away really rapidly in that really, really turgid middle act. Um, <laughs> and yeah, fuck, fuck this movie. That's that's where I ended up with it. Um, wow. I can't believe I might end up actually defending some of the things that you're going to have to say about it. But let's find out. Let's uh, well, let's take a listen to the trailer. So this is your last warning. If you haven't seen the film yet and you haven't read, I've noticed that reviews on this have tended to go quite spoilery. It is a difficult film to talk about mm. without going into very specific things about it. So we'll take a listen to the trailer, come back, and we're going to get straight in with some yeah deep dive spoilery stuff into the various things that this film decides bafflingly to do. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So... Talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. time we'll be meeting you don't listen do you you just ask the same questions every week how's your job are you having any negative thoughts all i have are negative thoughts and finally in a world where everyone thinks they could do my job check out this guy when I was a little boy and told people I was going to be a comedian, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. You can say that again, pal. It's so awful, isn't it? For my whole life, I didn't know if I even really existed. But I do. And people are starting to notice. You think this is funny? Is this a joke to you? Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker?
Okay, so that was uh, one of the extremely stylish and well-put-together trailers for Joker. Um, I had a question that I wanted to open this discussion with that was going to be a, that I thought was going to be a really nice and clever way of opening the discussion, but I'm going to postpone that just because of something that Joe said just before the jump, because you said that you... Uh, had a feeling about a particular scene and moment that you thought you felt the same as me and yeah. i have a feeling from what you said i have a feeling we're talking about different ones so just to okay, get straight maybe. into some granular specifics before we go back to more general stuff uh what specific thing are you talking about there so um i like i said i, I was quite positive on the first hour um there, there was stuff in there that I that I thought was a bit silly, uh, but I think uh, you know when you were talking about stylish and well put together, I do think this is a stylish and well put together movie. It yeah, is, sure. it is, it is cribbing from Scorsese, um, and whilst it's not, you know, it's not reaching the the levels of Scorsese, and definitely doesn't have, um, I think his uh, his consideration, his. Um, his depth of craft, his um, his handle over the themes of his movies, um, and and just to put it mildly, the class. Um, mm. It does. It is. <laughs> it is cribbing from Scorsese still, and it is. You know, it's doing that stuff. I, I think mostly effectively. I think that you know New York looks fantastic. Uh, it's funny that they could they should just call it just call it New York because it is well, New York. <laughs> that was the point I was going to make. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think that, like location wise, I think it's uh, you know it feels really authentic. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is it's a very dedicated performance. That's what you get from him. Um, I liked a lot of the stuff he was doing with his physicality. And I thought I could at least see a thread, which I'm sure we will get to discuss of, of of like why this guy was doing what he was doing. And it wasn't falling into the trap that I thought that, you know, that kind of all of our work, our worst fears for this movie were, um, in the second half, I think it it does fall back into that, mm. um, and like I said, I think the last twenty minutes is awful. But the bit that so I'm, I'm kind of on board, and then he reads this letter that says, "You are you are Thomas Wayne's son," mm. and I go, "Oh, so he so what he could potentially be playing on here is this is." This is Thomas Wayne's son. We know that Thomas Wayne's son in, you know, in the canon goes on to become Batman. And are they riffing on, look, if you, you know, you you take Thomas Wayne's son and you put him through, you know, a different equation. And rather than a vigilante who goes out and tries to wipe out crime, this guy goes out and through his consorted lens tries to wipe out uh, the the section of society that is benefiting from that from that inequality. So whilst Batman goes out and tries to eradicate the problem, uh, or the cause, I guess that then you've got Arthur in this movie turning to Joker and wiping out what he sees as um, the yeah the, the 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 flip side of that. And then in the very next scene, he goes to Wayne Manor and it's kind of, it's flipped, it's completely erased. Hmm. And, and and at that point, I kind of felt like I lost track of what the movie was actually trying to do or say, because it, was, it wasn't trying to make that comparison. 
Um, it Wait, wanted... in what sense do you mean it was erased? Well, because it, it just it, it eradicates the possibility of that story pretty entirely that he's not Thomas Wayne's son, um, and that he and that and also that I don't think it I don't think it it feels interested in exploring him as the as the like as the opposite to Batman uh because i i think for him to be for him to be going out and kind of doing what he what he what he's doing early in the movie feels like it could be this is the opposite of batman but what the point he gets to isn't and what i, yeah. I what i felt kind of from that point on was that was that all of these kind of ideas and me- and metaphors that it was playing with started to get muddled and it did stuff like revealing that his interactions with the Zazy Beats character were imagined. So I go, well, so what am I supposed to believe? And surely this is a movie that is entirely constructed around this character's psyche and how how he contorts to become the monster he becomes at the end of the movie. Well, don't I have to believe in what I've seen prior to that to to have a real handle on why he becomes what he becomes? I mean, well, so it was that. A... <laughs> it was that. But that, but that was the that was the point where I started to lose mm. a, a grasp okay. on what the film was trying to do, and I felt like Todd Phillips did as well. Okay. What, um, what was I your mean, breaking point, Seb? Did you have? I mean, one? It, well, it, it wasn't a breaking point. It was just more a specific thing I talked about, and actually, it was a. I mean, so just yeah. There's a few things you touched on there, Joe, which are actually very specific discussion points that I do want to come on to later, such as the nature of reality in the film, the the ties to the Batman mythos, and the utter pointlessness of trying to have any ties to it, given what yeah. this film does. Um, but no, the specific thing that I was talking about actually wasn't that. What it was to do with was I thought that the. Uh, the scene in the TV studio and the scene where he murders Murray uh, was really, really well done in terms of being a tense and exciting and well-done piece of cinema up to the point where in the immediate aftermath it, it gives some of the worst examples of something that runs throughout this entire film and from its opening scene, which is that constantly in this film people act like people don't act um and it goes back to and i saw someone else say this in a review so maybe it maybe it jarred for me because i've already seen someone mention it but right at the very beginning when he's being beaten up by those kids and they're all shouting hey beat him up kick him Mm. take us and it's like it's really like for a film that's supposed to have this kind of gritty realism and that runs right the way through to when he gets when the, the scene on the train which again is in some ways one of the best things that the film does but it has this yuppie guy you know, knowing all of the words to send in. Oh my the god! Yes, thank you. That was my, as soon as I started, I was like, "No way does this man know." I think it, I think Glenn Weldon made that point that like a straight city banker yeah. type would not know those lyrics. Yeah, no way. I mean, to be fair, it was closer to when the song was released slash popular. But even so, I was like, a drunken guy just starts with "Send in the clowns." He doesn't do this like elaborate lead up. Don't don't you think that with I would say that that's the case with every specific example in the movie of when someone is pointedly cruel to Arthur. Uh, I would say from that from yeah that first scene with the kids beating him up because why um, with the scene with the the mum on the bus being like don't mm. you look mm. at my child and um, and yeah the scene with the yuppies uh, the way that you're right everyone reacts to the crime at the end. Um, 
the way that the way that Thomas Wayne talks to him, you know, in the bathroom, and then like, yeah. ra- rather than being like um, that crazy dude who stuck his fingers in my son's mouth yesterday has just turned up at this uh, Charlie Chaplin screening I'm at because all of the influences of this movie <laughs> must be worn on its sleeve. Um, it's a modern times parallel, guys. Did you did you know um, that there's kind of like this like. Society has seized upon this act and not really understood that um, he's half-assed his way into it, rather than trying to make some political statement. Um, and you can tell that that's what's happened because they're watching modern times. Uh, which, I mean, don't get me wrong. Any chance to see that scene of Charlie Chaplin skating in modern times? <laughs> great, but it's just so addictive in this movie. But do you know what I mean? Like, why is Thomas Wayne in that moment? Why does he punch him in the face and and act pointedly cruel to this guy mm. who's clearly deranged? Rather than just going, this guy s- seems like a risk i'm just gonna go and get my security guard and have him removed yeah um but that's and that's the thing then but the, and there's there's several scenes like that but i think the one that really I, I felt it the most strongly was because you had had this really tense and well done scene something that once again is wearing its influences on its sleeve because yes okay we've all seen network um but like he shoots him after having already confessed to these murders now okay he could just be lying when he's confessing to the murders but the point is no one seems to act on the fact that this guy has gone on live tv and confessed to murder and then nobody seems to act on the fact that he's just shot a man live on air they carry on broadcasting people kind of run off in fear nobody confronts him nobody tries to stop him and then you have that pullback uh, with all of the screens and it's showing, you know, how the news media react to it and stuff. And you see the footage getting played over and over again on the mm-hmm. news. That would not fucking happen. No. Like, the Bud Dwyer suicide did not get repeatedly shown on the news after it happened. It was They cut away. They don't show people dying live on the news over and yeah, over and, again when it happens. And more era-appropriate, the Christine Chubbuck one, which I've seen referenced yeah. in relation to this movie, that, that you know... That was cut away as soon as possible and never exactly. showed that footage again. And it's just, I know, maybe it seems like a, a little thing, um, but it just seemed, as I say, it just seemed to me indicative um, of just this constant thread running throughout that, yeah, in order for things that the film wants to happen to happen, people have to act in this bizarre and unnatural way. And I think it, it bugged me with that scene because I had really. It, that scene was one of the the points in the film that had actually grabbed me. Like I actually think, conversely to you, I found myself enjoying the film more the closer he got to actually being the Joker. I think at the very end, I think it absolutely shoots itself in the foot. And I think again, we'll we'll get into some specifics about right. that. I think I think the way that things resolve are are dreadful. Can I can I just jump in here just in relation to that specific scene? <laughs> and apologies to Caroline because I, I'm aware that. You haven't really spoken so far, so I will I will uh, take a breath after this. Um, but I, I'm glad we do get to argue, Seb, because I that that whole scene with De Niro on the talk show, I just thought was I I I hate it. That's where I was like going, no fuck fuck you, Todd Phillips, because the, the moment where he sits there and goes. Uh, what happens when you cross a mentally ill guy with yeah. a with a society that's failed him? 
Oh, is that what the movie's about? Well, I'm glad that you're telling us that. At, at five minutes after the character had said that he didn't care about any of the politics and was completely removed from it. So, if he is completely removed from the politics, why does he? Why does he think that there is a society that's failing him? Why? And, and and why does? And even if that is the case, why does the movie feel the need that he has to say it out loud? I thought that that scene was was whacking Phoenix at his weakest in the movie because it didn't feel at odds with the version of the character that we'd seen for the rest of the film. Um, I, I I know why they cast De Niro. I don't think he was very good in it, and I don't think he was well cast for that part. Um, but it gives you your king of comedy, and it gives you uh, your De Niro credentials. But I really, really disliked the, the TV set. And like you were saying about I just people think it not behaving in... Well. I think because people you not behaving exactly in way that happen. But I think it, I think it made it tense, waiting for it to happen. But in in the way that people don't behave like you expect them to behave. Mm. So he says, "I I killed those people." And he's like, oh, "Are you joking? Are you joking? Is that a joke?" No, no, no. I killed those people. Well, even if that's even if he's admitting that and saying, "No, no, no I, I killed them." I still don't think in that situation people would so readily believe him. And if they did readily believe him, that broadcast ends at that That's moment. I mean. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> no, but not, but not even the showing of it afterwards. That no, no, that no, no conver- yeah, they would absolutely have stopped. That conversation that that stops point. dead. Yeah. And you know that one of the one of the and I'll be honest, King of Comedy isn't my favourite Scorsese uh, of that era. I I much preferred um, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, but. One of the one of the great kind of like wrinkles in King of Comedy is that he knows it's a pre-record because these kind of shows could never could never go out live live. So mm. he knows that he's got to he knows that he's got to keep hold of um, of Jerry Lewis in that movie for like two hours afterwards. So you get that great scene of him watching the um, watching the TV show with the cops in a bar before he goes and and well he doesn't need to let him go in the end. But you, you, like just the. There was no reality to that situation for me. It just it it fell into a pit of absurdity at that point, and then you know, then we get the stuff after that, which I was like, "Can we? Does this movie need four endings? Because each one of them's worse than the one before." I don't really know what to describe the genre that Joker falls into, but this sort of Scorsese, Parody. you know, yeah, era. And I think you see it in a movie like Good Times with Robert Pattinson. There is this sort of oh. like I don't know this like this. Just, genre of like hyper masculine cynical films that have never really been my taste um even as i acknowledge like you know if this sort of thing appeals to you it just appeals to you like i like jane austen adaptations so i enjoy watching bad ones you know what i mean (laughs) so i i get that level of it but i think in general one of the reasons that this genre does not appeal to me is because as you were saying seb like there is sort of a lack of maybe not a lack of how like complete lack of realism, but it's like in each scenario, the worst case thing happens to the point where then it stops becoming interesting because there's no, it's like, okay, an interaction is going to happen. Obviously it will be bad. And I think it's way more interesting to have some interactions be good and some be bad. I actually think that the interaction he has on the bus with the mom and the son to me is one of the more interesting ones. Cause we see that he is just being cute and charming with the little kid. I think it's kind of understandable that the mom would be like, nervous or just ungenerous about that and then I think him having the laughing breakdown and handing over the card that explains that he has this condition that makes him sort of spontaneously laugh that to me gets at a more realistic portrait of like 
the borderline between someone who just, you know, is struggling with mental health, is not good socially, the people around him understandably being cautious, but maybe having a little bit of sympathy, that to me is like, okay, that's getting into something interesting. But then in almost every other situation, he just gets physically attacked. So it's like, okay, the kids randomly physically attack him. The bros on the subway randomly attack him. Thomas Wayne punches him, which, as mm. one of you mentioned, is absolutely ridiculous. Like, so in each case, it's like, well, the answer will just be extreme violence. Mm. And I think that's 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 not realistic that every interaction you have in your life is bad. Or down to, the, like, the counselor he speaks to seems to be, you know, I don't think we're supposed to necessarily read her as a super empathetic figure, even if it's out of her hands that mm. the program gets canceled. But it's like, okay... I want I want a little more diversity of types of interactions that I think would actually make the characters like lived experience more interesting. And I guess we kind of get that with the mom and we kind of sort of get that with Zazie Beats. I guess that's what she's there to provide. But it's just like the, this movie is supposed to hinge on everything being surprising or like unexpected. But the thing is, every time you start a scene, it's going to end in violence and he's going to randomly kill someone. You know what I mean? Like you just know where it's going. And it all does, it, it has this kind of, increasingly every scene feels inevitable. It, yeah. You know, you, you, feel, you know where you're going to be in five minutes. And I've seen, you know, some people, uh, some reviews saying, you know, undeniably this is going to shake up the comic book genre. It, it's it's mm. not a movie that's in the comic book genre. And I, and I honestly don't see what it's doing that is particularly radical. And and I've said that's what I'd seen was like you know oh no matter whether you love it or hate it you're not going to be able to deny that what it's doing is interesting. I'll go oh I I think I'm I think I want to deny. There's the, I I can only think of one thing that this film does that I don't look at and and imagine that another film would do or already has done, uh, and that is to include so brazenly on its soundtrack a song where the royalties go to a convicted child abuser. Yeah, I saw you talking about that on Twitter. I had no, no idea about that. I think of that song as being something I hear all the time, and I had no idea it was connected to this. Yes, so there is a long and complex kind of story around America's relationship with Gary Glitter and with that song in particular. And for quite a long while after, do you want to say the name of the what's the song called? Just for people that don't know it, Rock and Roll Part Two, or or in America is just generally known as the Hey Song, I gather, because of. So yeah, so it's 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 a record from the seventies by Gary Glitter, who was an enormous pop star in the UK in the seventies and and eighties, which gained popularity in America because it's used at lots of different sporting events after goals and and whatever you call goals in American football and that kind of thing. (laughs) Oh, set field goals, right? Any touchdowns. Touchdowns, that's it. So, um, obviously then, Gary Glitter in the 1990s was convicted for possession of child pornography and went to prison. And at that point in the UK, because it was a well-known case in the UK, his music and everything about him, you know, was pretty much and quite rightly shunned by everybody. Um, He's then had other instances since then uh he was he went to prison in thailand for a little while and then actually more recently in the wake of uh operation U tree he was one of the first people arrested under operation U tree and was actually convicted for far more serious historic offenses um for dating from the 70s than he had been done for in the past and he's currently serving a much longer sentence in prison for those horrendous historic offenses um, up until the more recent stuff in America, because I think his his case, the the child pornography case, wasn't as widely known about. Uh, his music 
carried on getting used at sporting events because people you know in the uk it was associated with him as a star and as an individual and i think Mm -hmm. in the us it wasn't and it was probably quite often covers of it that got used at events and that kind of thing um it shows up in an episode of the office uh as well it's actually coincidentally it's an episode of the office where michael also does a bill cosby impression which is kind of unfortunate um but you know the point is you know i i wouldn't blame anybody for that and and for i wouldn't blame necessarily anybody in america for having ignorance of him and his situation but i think in light of the more recent conviction uh in light of the fact that it has been quite a while and gradually over the last decade i think people in america have started to understand and while you might still hear it occasionally at events it's much less i understand anyway that it's much less common than it used to be um when you put a song in a movie you have to go through quite a lot of processes involving clearance and rights multiple people are involved a music supervisor will be involved in terms of getting that clearance and and the rights and everything someone somewhere along the line must have known that putting this song in this movie would mean that gary glitter who has not sold the rights to his songs who is the writer of the old co-writer i should say of that song will will get royalties he literally will get royalties off the back of its use in this film and that to me is i mean at, at best it's negligent and at worst, it's someone de- um, deciding to be deliberately provocative and not caring about mm-hmm. those consequences. Um, it's, I, this was know. the one thing said that prior to the release of this movie that I couldn't argue with you about. I don't know what mm-hmm. the I don't know what the defence for this is. Well, that's why I wonder. I if don't, I don't know what about you, it in interviews because I don't I don't know what can be mounted. And I'll, I'll just say I think that scene with him coming down the stairs triumphantly, that incredible Joker costume that he's wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, Quacking Phoenix for the first time, fully embracing the full physicality of what he will be when he is the Joker. Um, and I, I kind of thought it was better in the trailer with the trailer music. For sure. Yeah. Because yeah. I will, yeah. It yeah. feels grander in the trailer. And then when it does segue back into the more classical score from the glitter track, I was like, and it, it now feels improved. So I don't like just on a. I can't imagine that's a song you go, oh, we can't possibly use anything else. Hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, obviously, the importance of not giving a child abuser money is much more important than any artistic considerations. But even not knowing any of that history, that moment in the film felt very jarring to me because that felt like completely the wrong song for the energy of that scene. And maybe it was just because hmm. I had seen it in the trailer. But that really stood out to me as, or I had seen it in the trailer with different music that I thought fit it better. But yeah, I thought that was just from an artistic standpoint as well as a moral standpoint, just a bizarre choice. Mm. Well, I mean, so coming back to something that was that we've touched on a couple of times before, because you've, you've kind of you've mentioned the Arthur slash the Joker's uh, relationship to the politics of the story, and this actually brings us back like twenty odd minutes into the um, the movie discussion, the question that I was going to originally open the discussion with, um, which was. What impression do you get about the politics of Todd Phillips, or, or at least you know, if you want to divorce him from the film, uh, him as a person from the film, then of this, the politics of this film from it? Because the feeling that I got out of it was that he really hates rich people and really hates poor people, and possibly, and I'll, this is a bit more controversial, and I'll go into some specific reasoning for it. Maybe not super keen on black people, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, I, I I will. One of my first thoughts in the movie when he, you know he gets beat up by 
uh, I think, like Latin American kids at the start, and then the woman on the bus is uh, black, as her daughter yeah. is, and that. And I did kind of go, oh. Um, in almost, in fact, almost every minor, or a vast majority of the minor characters were black, which I noticed as well. And I was wondering, I was like, well, maybe this is just supposed to be a like he's in a lower economic bracket and maybe mm. the reality of American society is that there are more people of color that would be alongside him. But then it also felt like, well, what's the point? If, if you're aware of that, then why are you making, I don't know, a movie about a white guy that's in this? I think it's when you add it as well to the social worker who is, who is symbolic yeah. of the system that's failing him and the admin clerk who he assaults and the, uh, psychiatrist who he possibly murders at the end it's just one of those things where now admittedly there are lots of examples in the film of white people being horrible to him as well mm-hmm. so it could be a clutch and this is why I say it's a, it's a controversial one but I, I feel like maybe again it's something that maybe I, I, I don't think it's intentional but I think maybe not enough consideration was given to well, that's, how it yeah, comes no, that's, across. That's where I land because you look at you look at something like Taxi Driver. Uh, Travis Bickle is Travis Bickle is a racist when he's mm. talking about cleansing the scum of the streets. He is, I, I think, explicitly on occasions. But you know, like even when it's not explicit, he's you know he's talking about you know the the kind of the people from the other ethnicities that he kind of feels disgusted by and that's his viewpoint um it it, it doesn't feel like it is arthur's viewpoint but a no, lot not of the time arthur, I no not arthur's at no, all no no but no, no, no. I, that's what i mean Ed, but so so what's the point otherwise like it, it it for it to be in there even on the fringe where we're noticing it you kind of well if you're in charge of your themes and you're cribbing from scorsese like you are and you have something to say about race have something to say about the way that arthur potentially views race have something to say about the way that the rich elite of gotham view race um yeah. is 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 race inherently tied into um into the way that you know that that the social inequality uh has come about because you know in real life it, it was and i'm willing to bet in this situation which is pretty much 1981 new york i'm gonna guess that yes it is as well but the film okay. isn't concerned with that and arthur sp- specifically never gets anywhere near that um i think that's I, a really good distinction of the the point of view of like Arthur, the character and the point of view of the movie. Cause I think conversations that can easily get inflated there, but I, I do totally agree. Cause I think the movie actually goes out of its way to say like, Arthur isn't racist. Cause he isn't really, he's actually very sympathetic towards the kids that beat him up. Obviously he's in love with Zazie Beetz's character, but then it does feel like beyond that, the movie as a whole is its own point of view. And that point mm, of view feels actually I mean. messier than Arthur's point of view. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that that similarly ties to then again, like I say, the sort of I was I was really trying to get to grips with, and I don't know if it's the case that the movie is deliberately trying to be nuanced about it, or if it's just that the, I, know, I I kind of more land on the side of the movie didn't know what it wanted to say, because on the one hand, the movie kind of feels sympathetic to the position of the protesters that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the the rich elite, uh, and you know, particularly with how it presents Thomas Wayne, it doesn't. The movie doesn't necessarily feel like it's on the side of the rich elite in that sense. Yet, and at the same time, um, it 
it doesn't feel like it's on the side of the protesters in the sense of um, it's you know it's it's rich people and cops, so it's the establishment really who get kind of yeah. murdered and hurt. And the way that it portrays the kind of the the rioting underclass is just as a vo- like a group of people who en masse have taken the opportunity to be a violent, murderous mob because yeah. they've been given that figurehead in the shape of the Joker. It's like the Joker comes along and all of a sudden everyone is willing to become a, a clown rioter. And like the scale of it at the end where the entire city is degenerating into anarchy. And I just felt like it was it was like it was saying like that that to me felt very conservative because it as I say it didn't feel like it was sympathetically portraying the protesters because it was associated like it was almost saying it was sympathetic to their point of view about hating the rich but also that they couldn't be trusted not to side with a murderer i just the film never feels like it like it settles on a point of view no it strong, doesn't strongly mean. enough to, strongly enough to say that it ends up with any of these i mean that's so when I say that I liked where it was going in the first half, I kind of felt like so Arthur was a guy who uh, he was suffering from uh, mental illness, which we can talk about the depiction of that uh, in, yeah. in general at some point. But if his, it seemed like Todd Phillips was saying, right, here is a guy, he is mentally ill, um, and he is having kind of everything rained down on him. He has very clear daddy issues. He's poor. He's having to live with his mother. He's socially awkward on top of the on top of the mental illness. Mm-hmm. The specific problem that he's got makes it very hard to connect with people because he laughs and that kind of draws him out as a weirdo to everyone, even amongst you know these this other group of weirdos at the at the clown company that he works at. He is an outcast, and it's this barrage of stuff that comes down on him, and that that leads him into that position where he just feels like I don't know how to function within this society. And when he lashes out, it's not that he's lashing out because suddenly he's reached breaking point and he needs to shoot these guys. It's because that was his instinct at the time. And he saw for once like, Oh, I've just done something and I can see the immediate impact of that. I was annoyed with these guys. I pulled that trigger and I killed them. And you see when he when he kind of retreats into the bathroom afterwards and you see him starting to do the dancing, it's like he feels comfortable with his, within his own skin for once and that like he's actually been able to express himself. And I'm going, oh, do you know what? I kind of... And like that, that, that it didn't feel incelly to me. It didn't feel like a guy who was lashing out at society. Yeah, it so- felt like... It felt like very specific to that guy. These set of horrendous circumstances had led him to that point where he ended up killing people and found out, God, God, you know what? I kind of enjoyed that release. Mm. But then the the movie gets so complicated with its point of view on everything in the, in the, like the following half hour, hour of the Mm. movie that I don't, it, it definitely doesn't end at that point. And certainly I don't read the guy who's screaming out on the stage what happens when you cross a mentally ill person with a society that, you know, treads on everyone, whatever the specific quote is, that doesn't track from that first guy to the guy at the end. But no. I think that is what, I think that's ultimately what Todd Phillips is trying to say. And if, and, and when he says, when you cross mentally ill, 
nebulous with society nebulous because I haven't actually got a proper a sp- grip on yeah. the specifics of either. It's just like, well, then what? what's the point? Mm. I mean, the stuff you're talking about there in the first half, like, allayed what was my biggest fear going into the film, which I think we talked about in detail, which was, yes, that my, my concern was that this film was going to rationalise someone turning to being a horrific murderer purely because they are someone who had something wrong with them but who fundamentally wasn't like a bad person or anything um, and the world shits on them and so the combination of the world shitting on them and them already having this this disorder um, is what turned them into a murderer and that and that the film was going to make you sympathetic that like you know or oh, anyone could become that uh, it's society that made them that way. And how it plays out with Arthur, I do think that, yeah, in that first half, it's careful enough that, yes, obviously, you know, he's in a he's in a shitty, horrible situation and there's lots of things that aren't his fault. But equally, it plays that, crucially, his initial reaction to what happens on the subway. Now, while you could still, you know, track it back to the, the problems and, and the fact that he's a product of abuse and this, that and the other, but really... I think the film, I don't think the film makes you sympathetic to him throughout that sequence because actually the way that he reacts to it and the way that he starts to kind of revel in it, you're mm. actually sat there going, well, yeah, okay, obviously you have had a shitty life and you, you've, you've been dealt this terrible hand, but also you're just not really very nice, are you? And so it's it's that combination of things that that gradually turns him into what he becomes. And so when he starts to do the truly irredeemable things and like when he when he smothers his mother and that kind of thing you're like you know this isn't just someone turned into that by circumstance it's like you know it's just deep down he just isn't a nice person as much as you might want to sympathize with him so so my fear of um this is going to make us sympathize with the joker was unfounded but then I think it, swing, it swings back closer yes, to it. It, and then, it, it, it swings towards the end. It suddenly decides that society and the lack of treatment for people with mental health problems um, was the problem. And it's like, well, yes, obviously that is a contributing thing. But if you're saying that, what you're kind of saying, and it's a really dangerous thing to say, is that you are equating any mental health issue with the potential for being a murderer and that is you've got to be so sure-footed in how you're approaching that if you're going to approach it and i don't think this film is smart enough at what it's doing to to do that in a in a satisfactory way i also think stuff like uh... so i will say the the zazie beat stuff rang really false to me early in the movie mm. with her she's like, were you stalking me that's adorable yeah. let's go let's go watch your stand-up and i was like oh this is strange but at least it removes that incelly element so he can't like th- there are people who are willing to connect with him there's the guy at his work there's, uh, and but then when it kind of undercuts that and then the fact that he goes to her apartment sits there, walks out without being explicit about what happened. And I get that you don't want to depict that violence, but it also feels like she's just been thrown away and it doesn't matter because oh, I feel was like... The, is the implication that he killed her? I uh, That was what I took from it. Oh, oh I didn't Oh, I didn't, I didn't really that. think about it at all, no. actually. Now well, what's, what's, what's he doing there otherwise and why is she not appearing for the rest of the film? 
Yeah, I thought it was just a moment. I yeah, I, I guess I just thought it existed just to tell us as the audience what had actually been going on. Yeah. I thought it was really pointed that he all of the people that he did kill in the see and this is another thing that I don't really understand because like the movie goes it's it's my mental illness mi- mixed with society but the only per- people he kills are people that he feels have personally wronged him so it's it's the guy who gave him the gun and then sold him out to his boss um the the cops get it murray gets it because he humiliated him on television his mother gets it because uh she allowed him to be abused as a child like the the people that die at his hand are the people that he feels he was personally wronged by and Mm. i feel like when he's had this fantasy about zazie beats and spending all this time with her and realizes that it was none of it was ever true and she kind of didn't see him the way that the rest of society didn't see him. I don't know why else he's showing up in her apartment at that point of the Mm. movie. I didn't really read it. I don't know. You might be right. I didn't really read it as a murder. I appreciated because like you, I sort of, I sort of pinged on the relationship between them being very odd and unrealistic Mm. and was like, Oh, well that's just bad Hollywood writing. And so I will give the movie credit for, like, they got me with that surprise. I did not think she was imagined. I thought it was just bad writing. So I appreciated yeah. that it wasn't bad writing, that that was intentional. And I actually appreciated that when, in the scene where he was in her apartment, like, that was actually a time where she was very, very empathetic in her response to him. Even though, you know what I mean, their relationship had been imagined. She was still like, isn't your name Arthur? Like, can I call your mom for you? Even in a situation where she was the person that was, like, the most threatened she was very empathetic. Yeah. I guess I didn't really, I honestly just didn't think about what happened after that. I thought it was just a moment that was meant to like inform us as the audience. I kind of assumed it was just like an awkward interaction and then he left. But I do feel like it's very different reading if if that is a murder he commits. I mean, I think it's weird because the film, the film really wants us throughout to question the reality of what we're seeing. Um, you Why? Know, well, doesn't it doesn't it just undercut everything when you when well, you find when you find out that that Zazie Beats stuff is imagined? I I I did appre- I did appreciate that it removed a shitty part of the movie, but then you then uh, are you left are you supposed to be left wondering whether he could be Thomas Wayne's son? Because well, that's that. no, that's the point. I, I I honestly believe that one of the things about this film and it plays into like they talked about. One of the things, like probably the only thing from comics that they really took any inspiration from was Killing Joke. And the whole point about Killing Joke, what Killing Joke makes clear, uh, and that like Dark Knight, for example, picked up on, is um, when it comes to the Joker, you just don't know. And anything you might hear about how he came to be or who he is may or may not be true. And I think the film wants you to come out of the film questioning whether literally everything you've said, and this is what I think the point of the final scene at Arkham is, I think the film wants you to question whether anything Mm. you've seen up to that point has been true. And I think it's doing this for two reasons. Number one is, as I say, because it's the Joker. And number two, because that's what King of Comedy and Taxi Driver did. Yeah, Um, that was what I was thinking too. King of Comedy especially has those, those fantasies that unfold where you're... Well, with King you're of like, Comedy, oh, this like, is you, real, and then with it... both King with them, you don't know if the end is yeah. true. I mean, yeah. I think with, you know, I think with King of Comedy, 
you're closer to being able to take it. It's, it's more believable that the end of King of Comedy could be true than the end well, of Taxi Driver. You, you um, take, you're supposed to take King of Comedy right as true up until the point he gets into, uh, until the point he's arrested, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's what I mean. Do we want to just real quick, for people that haven't seen these movies, just like, so King of Comedy, these are both Martin Scorsese movies from the yes. 70s, 80s, and King of Comedy stars Robert De Niro. He's sort of a delusional, would-be stand-up comedian who's trying to get onto a TV show similar to the Arthur story here. Mm-hmm. Uh, taxi mm-hmm. Driver is probably more well-known, but that's also Robert De Niro as sort of like a deranged taxi driver who winds yeah. up sort of trying to commit assassinations, just if people aren't yeah. familiar <laughs> with these films. Yes, and the, and the, and the point, and so at the end, the, the point about the end of King of Comedy, and and the, the the reason why I think it is supposed to be believable that it's true is because it's a comment on celebrity. And the point about King of Comedy is that mm. after having kidnapped uh, Jerry Langford and gone through all of that, uh, he gets out of prison and releases a book about what happened and becomes a celebrity off the back of it and gets his own TV show off the back of it. Um, and, you know, it's a deliberate commentary on celebrity and, and the kind of people that we make into celebrity. But the way that the film frames it, it is entirely possible that he's imagining that because it's played with, with fantasy scenarios throughout. And with Taxi Driver, it's the whole sequence at the end where he rescues her, where it just goes into such ridiculous, over-the-top uh, shootout violence that um, I, th- I think with Taxi Driver, I think it's clearer that it's supposed to be imagined, but I think it's I, open I don't, that it but can I be think, interpreted either way. Yeah, and I think crucially with Taxi Driver, neither the neither reading of the movie to me is less interesting. Mm. Neither neither reading makes me walk away and go, oh well, if if it's that, I I appreciate it less. I, yeah. I'm, I'm interested by both realities there. But I think I think the problem with Joker is in in another example, as as with the political thing of having its cake and eating it. Um, it's, it has one specific example where it explicitly makes clear that mm. something has been imagined. And because of that, you're like, well, you've got all of these other bits. If you, if you hadn't had the confirmation that the stuff with Zazie Beats was imagined, then anything could be imagined. But just purely from a, a narrative and storytelling point of view, if you've introduced a storytelling telling element, which is the moments where you see the scene and then you see the scene again... Um, because you've done that, because you haven't done it for all of the others, how are we supposed to take the others? And yet there's, you know, I I do think the film would be a lot more interesting if it ended with him in the asylum and you genuinely, it was a rug pull and you were like, I don't know if how much of what I've just seen is true. Especially given that, you know, the whole veneration of him during the rioting and stuff feels so over the top and so unreal Mm -hmm. That you know that does feel to me like something that he would be imagining. See, um, I I think the the only way that I can keep saying and actually retain any level of investment in this movie is go. I don't care about the final scene in Arkham, whether it was imagined or not. It's either fully how it unfolded in his head, or it's fully imagined, uh, or, or or it was all real. Sorry. Uh, and then within the actual narrative of the main thrust of the movie, yes, the Zazie beat stuff is imagined. And I just, for my own sanity, have to believe that the rest of it unfolds as we see it because, mm. and I, I just feel like uh, because the the Zazie beat stumps is something that makes him happier and more content. I feel like the thing that he would have fantasized about would be Thomas Wayne being his father. Not he wouldn't have fantasized the 
bizarre story where he's abused as a child and adopted, which leads him to killing his mother. I, I don't believe that he would have fantasized that stuff. But I just I, it, that's why it frustrates me that he that he that Todd Phillips throws it in there, or that he leaves that that slightly ambivalent that that uh, note from Thomas Wayne on the back of the photograph, just to throw that last bit of confusion in there. I don't yeah I don't see, I don't see what it contributes because the only thing that I want to come out of that I I feel like it should be coming away from this movie is, as I said, understanding what Todd Phillips is trying to say about society, and I think that's confused, so I don't, or understanding what is going on inside Arthur Fleck's head. And when you introduce that, oh, who knows what you can believe? Well, who knows what to invest in then? Yeah. I didn't come away questioning whether the world was real, even though sort of, I mean, obviously in retrospect, that's what the final sequence in the asylum is meant to show i think i was so bored by that point i just wasn't taking it in i did come away questioning whether thomas was still actually his dad though that to me felt like ambiguous to yes even though i feel like the movie is leaning towards no mainly because the adoption story felt so strange and out of nowhere that i was like that does seem more likely that a billionaire cooked that up than that this just happened yeah but yeah. then if it is it's it's <sighs> I mean, okay, Joe, you you did sort of have an argument before for for what the point of it would be in terms of I just I, as a, as an opposite to Bruce. But... I think I think there's an interesting version of the movie there that I thought, oh, is that what they're doing? I'm really interested to see where they go with that because then I I, I think you can because you could have even then unfolded the movie as a critique of Batman and gone yes, and I'm... gone and gone right. Batman as a concept is this rich vigilante who puts on a mask. In this film's parlance, he's the super cat going out to kill the super rats, right? Um, and and rather than going out and f- and fixing society's problem, he wipes out the criminals. And you can make an argument. You can make an argument that those crim- criminals are more often than not going to be more likely to be from the lower strata of society than they are from. The, and, and I know you've got your mob bosses, and you've got you've got to mix of everything. But what I mean is, you could no, you could, I, yeah, yeah. It's the you common could, thing that's talked about with Batman. Yeah. Yes, and you could and you could launch that critique of, like, okay, so Batman goes out there and he is wiping out crime, but he's not wiping out the things that actually cause it in the first place, and that's the problem. Yeah. And you ha- you could have had that the flip side with Arthur, where Arthur is killing the manifestation of you know like of of social inequality with rich guys. But that's not what causes. They're they're just the benefactors. They're not the causes of social inequality. And then I think that you could you have that fulcrum point there with with uh, Thomas Wayne, who is this rich guy who's getting into politics, who says, you know, I, I'm you know I I'm looking out for these poor guys, but also calls them clowns and doesn't buy into the things that they're annoyed about. And I and I didn't I, I walked away from the movie not knowing what. Todd Phillips was trying to say about the Thomas Wayne character either. Like, yes. was was he supposed to be this Trump-like 
um, Boris Johnson-like out for himself and his cronies kind of rich guy entering politics? Or was he, as the father, as we know, the father of Batman and has been depicted, you know, like fairly positively in in other films? Um, is he is he actually is he actually true to his word? Is he putting his money where his mouth is and trying to make society better because he sees what the problems are? And is he trying to clean up New York in a in a in a slightly less Giuliani way than uh, <laughs> Giuliani went actually went about? There seems to have been a real push more recently to kind of have negative portrayals of Thomas Wayne. Um, because obviously you've had the Flashpoint, the Flashpoint universe. Batman is Thomas Wayne. He's from a universe where um, Bruce and Martha were killed by the Mugger, and so Thomas Wayne becomes Batman. And he's a much darker and less pleasant version of Batman. And in, in the current Tom King run, he's actually working with Bane. Um, and you've had in Batman Damned, which I mentioned earlier, the Batwang comic. Um, that has a flashback, which has a very heavy implication that Thomas Wayne was soliciting prostitutes. Um, and I don't know how he's portrayed in Gotham, um, but there just feels like people want to kind of tarnish the the idea that Thomas that Bruce had this wonderful father, and I don't like it because it's you know it, it, it's it's like tarnishing Uncle Ben. It's you know the 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 death of Thomas and Martha is the reason why Bruce became who he became, and if if Thomas Wayne is a you know a, a self-interested asshole who punches a guy in the toilet and swears at him then i'm like that's not that's not bruce wayne's father and that's that to me is you know it doesn't matter if you go and show them being shot in the alley and you i can't believe it included the pearls thing it's i like, almost laughed out loud in the pearls. theater when that um, it doesn't matter if you show that because if you've if you're showing that but what we've seen beforehand is that version of thomas wayne then you're not really showing us batman and that brings me to something that i that i wanted to bring up generally which is what is the point of this having any connection to Batman whatsoever, even if I'm not saying what's the point of it being Joker. At least you know if it, if it's if if you've decided to take the idea of bloke becomes murderous clown and you like the iconography of Joker and the idea of Joker and you want to take that murderous clown idea and put it into something completely different. Fair enough, but given that Todd Phillips has gone on in interviews about them not wanting to make a comic book movie. Um, the fact that this film works to actually have ties to Batman, mm. and I just don't understand why it bothers, because nothing that it does says anything thematically interesting about the idea of Batman. No. And, you know, part of what makes the Joker interesting is that he is set up in direct opposition to Batman. Um, the Joker, to me, is not particularly interesting without Batman, in much the same way as Batman is not particularly interesting without various villains like the Joker. And it's the same with Alex Luthor and Superman and any other of those those dichotomies that you want to talk about. Um, and at least with, you know, this film is trying to make Joker interesting in his own right, and that's fair enough. And whether or not it succeeds, I think in some ways it does, in some ways it doesn't. Yeah, I think but at it's... times it does. I think at times it genuinely does. It's not. Yeah. This is not a meritless movie, but that's why the frustration about how thematically incoherent it is. Yeah. Is it, it hits so hard in the second half of the movie because you're like, well, but you, it... had, you had potential, and you're yeah. right. This, the, the Batman tie-ins and the DC tie-ins in general. I will say, I like. I feel. I feel like the reason this is there is because Todd Phillips kind of 
felt like he had to. And he said he went off and read some comics. And, you know, he obviously went off and read The Killing Joke, Batman Year One, and The Dark Knight right? Returns, right? He, he did the, he <laughs> he did did the, the three he had three. to. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, like, because I did, uh, the, the one comic I got vibes of when I was watching this was The Dark Knight Returns with the TV stuff Joker actually kissing the, uh, the, mm. the other panellist on the TV show and... Um, and like just the the scuzziness of of it all. It, at least the scuzziness of New York feels Frank Millerish, if if nothing else does. But you're right. I like I, I, that moment in the middle. I actually I, I'm remembering the exact moment where I where I went. Oh, you've done something interesting. Oh no, you haven't. Like oh, is this the is this the reverse Batman? And then you see the photo of the Waynes in the paper, and there's a little Bruce in the background. And I was like, it doesn't even. It doesn't even really track that he there would be a young Bruce. That what could do we have to have a Bruce? Could we not just have a world where the, there isn't a Bruce Wayne? And exactly, I, and I actually think this this film would be more interesting if it was Joker in a world completely without the Waynes. I think I think trying to shoehorn in the Waynes makes it less interesting. Especially will, because it sets up the you know in the beginning it's like so tied to this talk show host to murray right like that's his father mm. figure and then it takes this weird detour to like is thomas his actual father nope okay now we're going back to murray and it's like well if the whole movie had been about the murray arthur dynamic in some way yeah, i think that yeah. would have been a stronger it could, it could even have been movie. murray who his mum had convinced right. herself was his father you know? yeah <laughs> something like that something that just makes it more because it does feel like very obligatory like oh we need mm. to have a scene at wayne manor and oh we need yeah. alfred to come we have in to get and our it alfred doesn't yet really another feel... addition to the live action alfred also cannon. weird that his mom's name was penny and then alfred pennyworth i was like that's a lot of pennies in this situation <laughs> yeah. um what um i did actually like Douglas Hodge. <laughs> I thought he was fun. <laughs> I like. I mean, he's got a very particular energy, and I I, I like his energy. Um, I on, I liked on... having a portly Alfred because original Alfred was 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 like a round butler type uh, before they changed him. So I, I quite liked having a, having a portly Alfred for once. What did you guys think of Robert De Niro's Murray? Um... <laughs> I didn't think it was a great performance. The idea is fun as a as an homage to King of Comedy for people who who like that movie. I think it's fun. I did not think it was a particularly interesting or nuanced performance. Again, talk about like unrealistic behavior. Okay, a we're we're 1980s um, talk shows just full of like viral video clips. That felt so weird to me. That like yes. hey, we got this crazy footage of a guy. Like this is something that would happen on a tv show now i don't why why was it felt i think i saw someone say it felt like there was a version of the script that was contemporary before they decided to put it back in time and that that plot element had to stay so they had to awkwardly make it we've been sent to tape right like have a shot at the start of the club scene to show you them being taped so that you knew that they were all getting taped like right but like why was why were they being taped why would someone it wasn't even that funny you know what i mean like in an era where you Mm. need a lot of viral clips i could see someone putting that on but in an era where this is not standard practice like Mm. him bombing is not worth you know what i mean it was odd that he would put the show that on the show it was odd that murray would invite him onto the show it was like the only reasonable character in this film is mark maron who is in it for 30 seconds (laughs) and it's just like why are we putting this guy on this doesn't make sense and robert senior was like no no no, it does make sense and no it never makes sense and i couldn't even get a handle on murray because the way that he comes across um, and the whole thing with him playing the clip you know he's obviously meant to come across as a complete asshole but then off camera 
he's quite nice. Right. And right. then in in the the later kind of you know in the recording when when they're talking about the murders you know he's genuinely horrified by it and it's like well that's so which is he because usually you'd think it'd be the other way round he'd come across well on television and be horrible behind the scenes but yeah yeah and and I could, like with the king of comedy riffs like Jerry Lewis is is just like a exasperated dude in king of comedy he's he's a he's a pretty normal guy. And even when he's a bit harsh to uh, Popkin in that movie, y- you get it. Uh, this, th- you're right. That interaction feels cruel, and it feels like something that you would do in a movie about contemporary celebrity now. Um, For sure. Yeah. About about the way that society uh, is happy to ha- to you know line these people up in front of Simon Cowell to be torn down in yeah. different mm-hmm. ways, Completely. Um, or or you know for Piers Morgan to say something nasty to you on a on a show. like um, I mean because the, the thing that always struck me about um, X Factor in the UK, um, but I'd, I'd be surprised if it isn't the same for American Idol. If you get onto the TV on X Factor, even at the like the judges round, you've been through three rounds of auditions before you yeah. get there, uh, which is insane to me. So you've you put through people through three rounds of auditions just to be the act who is set mm-hmm. up to be weird and humiliated. Yeah. That feels like a comment on contemporary culture. I don't see where that fits into this movie and and what. Uh, like because the movie's depiction of the the media is very very basic like uh, like you say it's like it doesn't feel reflective of any media in any time um i i yeah i i i found it very strange that that was the mechanism they used um and didn't see how it really contributed to anything other than we're doing king of comedy well, to be honest, like, because he has the explicit fantasy, right, at the beginning where he's watching, this is another one along with the, the Zazie Beats thing where he's watching TV and then he imagines himself in the audience and Murray, like, invites him down. That's one fantasy. I actually Which found I really that liked. fantasy to be more realistic than the fantasy of you had a bad <laughs> viral video and then you get yes. to be, like, the lead guest on a the biggest talk show. Like, why would, yeah. why was he invited on as a guest? It was not, like... If I can even vaguely believe that his, you know, quote unquote viral video gets shown on the show, there's just not enough there that you would invite him on to be a guest. That felt as much a fantasy as anything else. And I don't think we're supposed to see it as one. Again, I guess it's all up in the air. But that to me all just felt so bizarre. And I do think that if you had had Murray be a more developed character throughout, we that maybe all would have made more sense. But the Thomas Wayne, you know, bathroom detour is is pulling time away from that. But you, right, it, if if you are supposed to be questioning whether the dramatic climax of the movie is real or not, then then what's the point of everything that precedes it? You know, that's what the movie leads to. That is, and if it's all just going on inside his head, I think you would need. I think if that for that last moment of the film to met to to be meaningful and to come away with like a real oh yeah i wonder you you almost need to pinpoint a moment earlier in the movie where you go that that's the point that's the you know that's the jacob's ladder point as he died there and everything else is imagined or mm-hmm. in this situation was he committed at that point and everything else is imagined but you don't get that here so i don't i like because okay, I, I, the way I approach movies or tend to approach them is I go in and I watch them and I try not to be overly analytical in the moment of particular things. 
I, I want to come out of the movie and go, right, I liked that and I didn't like that and now I want to think about why. And even if I had liked that, and I, you know, and then you go through and you, you, you try and pick it apart, the fact that it calls all of that into question and fantasies within fantasies within fantasies, like, well, what? So what am I investing in? Who is the? What? What am I supposed to understand about this character? What am I supposed to understand about what Todd Phillips is saying about society? Here, here's, here's a because I feel like we've been very negative. Here's a potential <laughs> positive side that I think for me speaks to why I, I came away from this neutral as opposed to like negative on it. So I think one thing I've seen is is people asking, you know, why is Joker being so heavily critiqued and criticized for potentially, you know, inciting violence in a way that a lot of the movies it's homaging or that are similar aren't? I will raise my hand as the person who is equally critical of those other movies. I think that this genre, this like gritty crime Scorsese flavored genre I pretty much always find it to be hollow, have characters that are not human beings and have no thematic importance at all. Like just, you know, obviously there are exceptions to that, but, but just sort of in general, I don't get a lot out of this genre except for Mm. it's like aesthetic pleasures as the visuals and the tone it creates. I think Joker has pleasing aesthetics in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously the things that are happening are gruesome, but you know, they're, they're well put together. And I think it very successfully creates an unnerving tone. Like I was Mm -hmm. very, very unnerved watching this all. So for me, those are the things that I also get out of a lot of, you know, that's what I got out of good time. Like I, it's aesthetically interesting and it's unnerving and I don't think there's anything deeper. And again, as I said before, it's like, if, if this is a genre that speaks to you and you enjoy it, I think it's totally, fu- it's totally, you know, understandable to just enjoy an homage to your genre. And so to me, this is like the same way I feel about, honestly, about a lot of Scorsese films themselves. Like I don't get a lot from them. And so the fact that I didn't get a lot from Joker, it's not like, oh, this is shocking to me. I didn't get a lot from it. That's just sort of, to Mm. me, that's part and parcel of the genre. And so the best way for me to enjoy these films is to just to not analyze them (laughs) deeply and just to like enjoy them for their surface level. So I, I I mean, I do, I do get a lot from those Scorsese films and we would fall out on the good time podcast because I really like good time. (laughs) I I think, I think it's, uh, it's title is a review. Um, I mean, Seb can probably talk to why there's, there's more discussion around the film because this is where we disagree um, uh, more around the, the discourse around the film and why people think that this is particularly more dangerous. I think probably that the, the specific incident is the Aurora shootings, right? That's the, Mm -hmm. that's the, that's the flashpoint. And, um, you know, there's been the family of some of the victims there have spoken out against this film and from, from what they've heard. Although I do think it's fascinating too, that this was not the discussion at all around suicide squad. And I don't know if that's just a marketing thing, but there, it feels like even though suicide squad is, joker it's very dark and twisty like that was sort of well, the thing and there's you know what i mean there 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 is a really different response i mean just public. just just to mitigate for all, I, I mean i i think there are some people who have made arguments and th- uh, some people must have been making this argument because it's the argument that todd phillips chose to respond to and the argument that todd phillips chose to respond to was this movie is about a violent psychopath character and because it's portraying that it might lead to copycats or um, you know, it sort of it might inspire people and that kind of thing, and that is not to me the that that was never the issue for me, and that that wasn't kind of what I I felt was potentially a problem. Mm-hmm. What I felt was potentially a problem was 
um, encouraging you to sympathise with the character and to glorify what the character did. And other than the very, very end of the film, I don't think it does the second, and I don't really think it does the first. So, uh, my, from that point of view, my, you know, as I say, my the fears that I had were kind of allayed, and um, you know, I, I don't have an issue with it portraying violence. Um, and I think when this film does portray violence, um, I think it's some of the stuff it does best because it does it generally in scenes that are that are well made and very tense. And it doesn't do it in a way that is pornographic. It doesn't do it in a way that sort of, as I say, that kind of glamorizes the violence. It's it's suitably horrific. Um, and you know, as I say, that's why it kind of frustrated me that Todd Phillips decided to kind of compare it to things like John Wick and say, "Well, no, you know, we're just we're, we're showing the consequences of violence." It's like, yeah, that that's not what my problem was. My problem was that you, I was worried that you were going to make people sympathise with this character, and that would be what would make people go, "I'm going to go out dressed up as the Joker and you know, sort of potentially do harm to people." I think right at the very very end, when it's sort of that that final scene. I think I think that's the only point where it mm. decides to make him cool. Um and even mm-hmm. when he's in the asylum and he's walking off with the with the blood on his feet and then you've got the bizarre Scooby Doo comedy thing of him being chased either side of the corridor. Um that's when it's as I say, that that's the moment where it does what I worried it was gonna do for the whole film and make him cool. But I don't think it does make him cool up to that point. I don't think it really does make him someone to try and aspire to. Up to that point, I feel Maybe like he, he kind of becomes suit, cool, but... honestly, in that the Gary Glitter song moment, yeah. like when he puts on the costume and does the dance down the stairs. From that point on, I feel like we're locked into him being cool. Which I think you could argue that's because the movie's supposed to be from his point of view. So, like when he starts feeling cool, we see him that way. Like I think there is an argument for that, or you could argue, should we just not make this character cool? Again, I, I have this question about every violent movie ever made. Like I actually kind of agree with Todd Phillips' things that we're not really. Yeah interrogating our love of violence probably nearly as much as we should. So I don't know. I, I have these questions about a lot of movies, to be honest. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, right. Heath Ledger's Joker is cool. Right. 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 We, yeah. We, yeah, we, yeah, for sure. We, we, we all agree. Heath Ledger's Joker is really cool. And loads of people dressed up as him for years afterwards. And yes, there was the Aurora shooting at the, at the, at the week on the weekend of you know I, I Dark Knight Rises screening, um, I find it difficult to draw a direct line to, between the way that a film pre- presented the Joker and even that particular incident. There, I I don't think that movies have that direct an impact on people where they go, oh. Yeah, look, th- th- even if this film was the worst, worst version of what we thought it could be, I just don't think that movies have that direct that that direct power over people. And I, and I kind of feel when, when people imply that they do, it's almost like saying, well, you know, for us smart people, we understand that what we're looking at is, that is fiction, but for these for these weird loners will 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 say that the movies do have the power to affect them i i i think that's giving i think that's giving though the people who go out and commit these awful atrocities an excuse you know and and i think it's it's something mm. that's uh it's a very convenient media narrative as well like we can say that 
John Lennon's assassin red catcher in the in the Rye first, and I think actually those uh, the taxi driver was was brought yeah, up in relation. That's what to I was going to gonna bring up. I mean, it, that is, I kind of want to lean towards agree agreeing with you, but taxi driver. I mean, literally, someone John Hinckley Jr. tried to assassinate the president because he saw that movie and. A wanted to copy what happened in the movie, and mm. B wanted to like have sex with a thirteen-year-old Jodie Foster. So, yes, that might be His... super extreme that someone is literally being yeah. a copycat. But I mean, I don't know. It did that did but, happen. So, I mean, what what I would be inclined to say in response to that is that I think if that if that person hadn't seen Taxi Driver, they would have seen something else. Sure, and been it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think and that's I, a good counter argument. And and, and so I, uh, I, I, I never really. While, while I think that movies can be irresponsible, and I think that this movie is in its last 10 or 15 minutes irresponsible, and I think that Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix should have thought about this, uh, and I think especially when you're when you're making a movie that is about the way that outside influences impact a person and push them towards a point of violence you should also think about about your movie in that context as well and then if you want to make the the kind of argument that i just made that like i just don't buy that these movies do these kind of things but we were aware of that and we kind of you know made some small concessions towards it just in case i i and i mean Seb and I have had the conversations about Todd Phillips. I've I've been really amused by the fact that the world has uh, discovered in the past fortnight that Tom Todd Phillips is an asshole. Because I mean, <laughs> go back and track that in, that guy's entire career all the way back to his documentary Frat House. Todd Phillips is an asshole. Todd Phillips is the guy that cast himself in Road Trip as the guy that the creepy guy that sucks on Amy Smart's toes in the movie. Uh, <laughs> Todd Phillips fabricated. Um, fabricated the scenes in frat house todd phillips um pretty much like shat on every all of his viewers when he released the hangover part two which was a cheap remake of his first movie and then was pissed off that people didn't like it um the way that he's talked about it you know in interviews has always been pretty toxic and i think we can all agree his his uh arguments that that wokeness has killed comedy are, are uh ironically laughable um i've lost my train of thought but yeah no basically i don't think that this movie you know even in its worst version is out there influencing incels um but I do think the movie is slightly irresponsible in its last ten minutes uh, or so, just because just because I don't I I think from more of an artistic point of view, you're making a movie about one of the most famous supervillains. Um, I I don't feel any need to present him. He's always going to be cool. He's always going to be like he's always going to have that edge to him because he's the Joker and he is this iconic emblematic character but you don't need to have any even any sense of sense of confusion in your final moments of are you lionizing this person are you setting him up as this symbol in the way that batman is in the batman movies um for the more impressionable um seedier side of society that that Todd Phillips is suggesting exists. I mean, again, Uh, though, I think you can say that about a lot of Scorsese movies, (laughs) you know? I think that you can have these same concerns about people being celebrated when they maybe shouldn't be. And this is a conversation so much broader than the Joker, even if he is, like, you know, quote-unquote, already a famous villain, so we know that going in, but 
I don't know. I think it's probably more the mass audience that Joker is going to access and the fact that he is already this character with this this cool veneer to him. Like I say, mm. I, I don't really buy it. And and I and I, I I you know, we don't need to litigate Scorsese, particularly in this podcast. I I would disagree um on Scorsese and I, I I I get a lot out of some of those movies. Um I I you know, I, I watch Taxi Driver and and while I find it really compelling, I don't I don't find Travis Bickle heroic. I find him like misguided. Um, yeah. And... I think Taxi Driver probably for me well, you said you don't we don't want to litigate Scorsese, but for me that one's actually one of the ones I have the least problems with. In right, terms okay. of like, is this celebrating something bad? But I think that there, just in general, I think that there are a lot of films that you can raise that question about, you know, yeah, and it's not absolutely. invalid to raise it about Joker. But I think, honestly, I think we could be asking ourselves that question more just in general. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and I do think that the way that cinema in particular treats violence, it, it's, I, I would say, for, you know, every... Um, particularly the MPAA, but every ratings board around the world, violence is something uh, that we treat so bizarrely compared to mm-hmm. uh, compared to sex and language. Like, you can't have more than one fuck in a, in a network TV, in a, sorry, in a cable TV show, for example. But you can have, I don't know, like Walter White ordering the deaths of 30 men in, in five minutes. Uh, and, yeah. and, sh- and show that violence pretty graphically. Yeah, like Taken, um, the movie Taken is a PG-13 movie and the movie 8th Grade is an R-rated movie, <laughs> you know? Like, there yeah. are some pretty stark examples. Yeah, so I would say, I, I think we have a problem with violence in general. Uh, but actually, as Seb said, I think the the way that this movie treats violence is, is actually one of its greater successes. Because it doesn't seem to revel in it. I will say I found the scene where he murders the guy from work, which again I found really confusing. Because here's a guy that's like, "Oh, Arthur, do you want a gun? Because I'm looking out for you." But also, I'm going to sell you out to our bosses. But also, then when we hear your mum dies, I'm going to be one of the guys that's straight around your apartment afterwards, <laughs> comforting you. Like that. That character doesn't track to me. Um, and then the the short jokes with the. With, with the other guy which my audience my audience was like rolling on the aisles during that whole scene yeah. like laughing Pock- which was an pockets interesting of my audience experience. were yeah and that's they're, they're the moments where there's an edge in the in the cinema right they're the moments where you're like oh am i i'm, I'm surrounded by people who think that's funny <laughs> he's yeah. just murdered this guy and then this other guy the whole tension from the scene is is he gonna kill this other guy as well yeah and then we're making a joke that he can't reach the lock and this isn't a funny movie. Like I didn't. There's no like no, I, I expected a, a there of, to be some comedic undercurrent, but it's just not there. It, it there's a lot of like it feels like it could take the opportunity to be funny with things and just doesn't. <laughs> mm. Do you guys want to talk about um, Joaquin? Because I feel like a lot of reviews yes, have I been like, I don't, I don't that. like oh, God, this yeah. movie, but I love his performance. So I'm curious where you know how you guys feel about that. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was going to say, yeah, we sort of we we should come on to that, but equally, I'm I'm not sure how much there really is to say about it, unless you really want to dig into it. Because I, mean, I yeah, want to dig into it. I think we should. Right. But okay, well, do some digging then, Joe. <laughs> well, so I, I I come preloaded having read Caroline's tweet about this. <laughs> do you want to do you want to set the table with that, Caroline? Yeah, I think I, just, I think your view is interesting. Don't think that this 
you know, I've seen a ton of almost uniformly or universally praise for this performance. Even people that didn't like the movie are like, you know, this is what holds it together. I will give him credit for being committed, obviously. And I do think Mm -hmm. it's a cohesive performance. But I don't think that this type of performance is as difficult to give as people think it is. And so these are the kind of performances that tend to get so much praise because they're so difficult. But I don't know. I think being... I think some of the hardest things to do in acting is like to listen and interact with people and to interact with the world. And that's not what this kind of performance is. This is a very like inward performative performance. You know what I mean? And Mm. it's like, you can be twitchy and weird and people are like, Oh, this is the pinnacle of acting. Mm. And I'm like, eh, this is, you know, it's a very, it just feels like a performance full of tricks more than a compelling performance to me. So, um, so yeah, so so my 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 preloaded response to that is um I I agree kind of but mostly disagree. So <laughs> I I I agree that that yes, I think that this that this performance doesn't necessarily have a high difficulty level. But I also can't think of many actors who would approach it the way that Joaquin Phoenix does and that feels s- he is one of those actors that I never question, that I'm never taken out of a scene with, and I and I think that yes, there is a lot of dedication to the craft and a lot of stuff going on uh, that he's bringing to it. Probably, you know, like acting, so much of it is it's a craft that we don't really understand how the sausage is made, right? Because so much of it has to be in preparation, and the best actors, it just it, their interior completely encompassing what they want to be we we don't see how that sausage is made but we what we do get is to taste the sausage at the end of it and that's so we can judge what good performances are but we can't always necessarily judge what's gone into them and that's why sometimes you'll see a fantastic performance from like a child actor who's never acted before uh, uh, like uh, Quivenjene Wallace in Beast of the Southern mm-hmm. Wild where she gets Oscar nominated and you're like yes undeniably that's a great performance but that she she probably didn't put the level of craft into that that maybe I don't know some some sure, random yeah. C list Hollywood actor put into um, I don't know tag <laughs> trying yeah. trying to think of the most anonymous Hollywood comedy of the last year um, but I I think a lot of it does uh, Phoenix obviously brings a lot of stuff to his performances and I don't think there are many other actors who could replicate. Uh, that that just constant intensity and that i mean he has that weird edge to him all the time and i did think you know the scene the scene where he has been interviewed on the talk show i was like this is like when he got interviewed by david <laughs> letterman when he was doing the um, yeah. i'm still here stuff like that's what it brought to mind for me and i was like that's why you can you can only get this from him and i'm sure that so much craft has gone into building this performance and it's a performance that Todd Phillips is able to successfully hang a film around and I'm not sure he would have been able to do that around too many actors and that comes in the casting but having said that you know like I I think the last two um Joaquin Phoenix movies I saw before this uh, you were never really here in the Sisters Brothers I prefer his performances in both of those and I think that's probably because his directors are giving him more interesting stuff to do in those two movies or a wider range of stuff to do because while I think Joaquin Phoenix is generally excellent in this he hits the same note yeah 
a lot for a lot of the movie. Which but is partially just good. the movie's fault too. Like clearly him yeah, dancing yeah, that's, that's it's supposed saying. to yeah. be a motif, but it's like, okay, we get it. Like we we caught it we could have five scenes of him dancing instead of like twelve. <laughs> it <laughs> did feel do, like a movie that didn't need to be two hours long. That was one of the things that I liked the most about his performance though, was that physicality. And I mm-hmm. think that you, you see it in the dancing, but you also see it in the moments of violence. Like I loved there was there's like a, a scene early on in the movie where he's captured almost in silhouette in an alleyway. I think it's after he gets fired, maybe. Uh on or whether no, it's after the when Josh Pace, his boss, calls him out on losing the sign and suggests that he stole the sign. And he's in the alleyway, like kicking this bin and these big gangly limbs are flailing in all directions and he collapses into it and i was just like oh I, yeah i kind of want to reach into the screen and mm. like feast on this physical performance that he's giving and i think he, there's there's a lot of moments throughout the movie where he does that and yes it's most obvious in the dancing but i think you you see his body change from when he is arthur to when he feels more confident in the joker persona but also when he is yeah, yeah, kind of engaging in those more um, violent impulses. And also when when he's performing on stage, when he's doing the stand-up, uh, when he's performing to the young Bruce Wayne outside of Wayne Manor, uh, the uh, a properly basic bitch Wayne Manor, I will say. I don't know where they shot that, <laughs> but it's... Um, it's not, it's not, as, uh, not as grand as anything that Nolan showed us. Um, yeah, so uh, that, that stuff I thought was was really really great and so i think i think he's very good in this but i can't i'll be surprised if we get around to february and because this has been you know thrown up as like he is the 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 bucky's favorite for Mm -hmm. best actor at the oscars i would be surprised if we get around to that and he is the person that i'm going what if he won an oscar Hmm. for this movie well he very well might do you guys like this more or less than heath ledger's take that much less yeah um, well, <laughs> the, mater- the materials just more... yeah, they're, they're, and they're doing such different things. I mean, he, I would say that Heath Ledger is playing the Joker, and I'm not sure that <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix is playing the Joker. But I like Joaquin Phoenix, and I think I think I think a lot of what makes this movie work is driven by him. To be honest, I think there are there are there are stretches. I mean, not least because a lot of the time he's on the screen on his own, but there are stretches where it's working because of how good he is at what he's doing um but yeah i mean heath ledger playing the joker is better at playing the joker mm-hmm. and i i do i i think if heath ledger you know if he hadn't have passed so young we would be talking about him as one of these especially after probably the opportunities that the dark knight would have presented him i think we'd be talking about him as one of those actors up there with with day lewis and phoenix and yeah yeah, I think just in general, I'm not as high on Joaquin Phoenix as clearly a lot. Like, I'm definitely in the minority on this one. I, it's, sometimes I really like him, and other times, sometimes, especially like with this, it feels like I can feel him in his head thinking I'm giving a good performance now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, ooh, this little twitchy thing I, I did, that you. looks really cool on screen. Or this dancing I'm doing, yeah, this is going to look badass. And that sort of takes me out of it. And maybe that's me unfairly projecting onto him, but... I just don't, I don't know. When I see he's in a movie, I don't get excited in the way that I do with a lot of the actors that I love best. I think that's absolutely fair. I, I would say, yeah, I, I weirdly, I don't get it. So I just think he has this intensity that he brings to almost everything. And he can be playing very, very different characters with very different ed- energies. But that intensity always feels like it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and even like I mean I, I loved him in the Sisters Brothers and that is a very that's a such a different character who kind of has this laid back energy but he still feels like I don't know there's just there's something magnetic about him I haven't I seen like, that so I'll have to check it out because that that sounds like it might be more at my alley Sisters Brothers uh, I think it came out last year in the US but this year in the UK and it's um, it's a Jacques Audiard movie. It's a Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix as the titular sisters brothers, Eli and Charlie sisters. Um, and the, the kind of the other, the other side of the coin is, um, a subplot with Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed. It's a, a really strong cast and, um, couldn't be uh, couldn't be more different from the Joker in that, like I found up every turn that the plot took incredibly unpredictable. Great, I'm sold. Do we, do we have any anything else to talk about with the Joker, Seth? <laughs> That's supposed to be me asking that. <laughs> have we been to too negative? Are there sure. are there are there positives that we are not considering, even if we don't feel them ourselves, that we should at least acknowledge for our Joker loving listeners? Do you know what, I'm. I'm sure there are. We we talked about this though, Caroline, didn't we? Just in the break there, that you know, very intelligent critics and you know, very very respected filmmakers and industry people gave this the golden lion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, film festival, yeah. And there there have there have been. I mean, generally, I think this this film's Rotten Tomatoes score is still very strong. There's been five star raves out there. I don't get it. I, it's it's a shame that that we like don't have one of these people in the podcast. But actually, I haven't spoke spoken to any of those five star people. I don't I don't know any of those guys yet. So I I don't know if there's just something that I'm not getting. I mean, yeah, among our, our group, Joe, we all thought you were going to be the one who was going to love it. So uh... yeah, and I, I did try. I did kind of try and lead you down that path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I guess I just will, I mean, I said this before, but that unnerving energy that it creates is successful. You know what I mean? If that's the sort of thing that you like from a movie, it's like not exactly my cup of tea, but like I cannot deny that this very effectively unnerved me the entire time I was watching it. And it's not, it's not a, it's not a bad, bad movie in, and I think my level of that, that fuck this movie reaction comes from what I was feeling about it an hour in compared to what mm. what I was feeling at the end because it does feel like there's so much potential and it does feel like there is so there is so much in terms of theme bouncing around in there that you want Todd Phillips to just grab onto one of them and really really nail it and you do have as far as I'm concerned this really strong central performance this really like New York feels so visceral in this movie it, you. It yeah, you're feels right, like nineteen eighty one New York. It's not Gotham, York. It's not Gotham no. <laughs> but it feels like nineteen eighty one New York. Some of the, some of the shots in this film, I'm going to yeah, just individual. I didn't know that Todd Phillips was capable of that kind of composition. Um, it, it looks gorgeous. The the costumes, I think, are really strong. Um, I, I I mean, I didn't like Robert De Niro, but there's not many performances in there that I that I can think that i didn't like i mean i i kind of liked alec baldwin as um as thomas wayne i thought that was great um i just there was this there's so i think there is almost so much to like in there that doesn't coalesce that's that's my issue with the movie it's a it's a it's one of it's it's a, a hate born of frustration and i do and, and i 
uh, sorry to flip this back onto the negative. I just think Todd Phillips. Um, I think there's there's a lot of affect in there rather than thought. I think this is a lot of style over substance, and the the, the those kind of Batman connections really did make me laugh because I was, I I was reading to, because I was I was trying to remember like because it gave me this Dark Knight Returns vibe when I was watching it, and so I was googling afterwards like uh, the Joker Dark Knight Returns, and I'd landed on Den of Geeks Easter Eggs article, and in there it says Arthur's social worker at the start of the film is named Deborah Kane. Bob Kane, obviously, being the co-creator of Batman. But I thought, Seb, you would appreciate that as if ever someone is going to, in 2019, kind of misunderstand Batman and the person <laughs> and the person that you should be referencing. Because this is not a movie with loads of name references. To drop a Kane reference and not a finger reference feels like a, well, actually, like a I mean, summation I, I, of what Todd Phillips is doing. And, and really, with the Joker, um, even less so Kane. I mean, it should really be Jerry Robinson. Um, because yeah, it was it's 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 Bill Finger and Jerry Robinson, but Jerry Robinson is the one who is generally accepted to have brought the most to the Joker. Um, he's the one who kind of first, you know, drew the kind of concepts for him. Um, but it was and it was Bill Finger who basically based him on uh, Conrad Veidt from The Man Who Laughs. Um, but yes, you know, you're right. It's sort of. Uh, Nowadays, in general, with Batman, you kind of have to reference both Kane and Finger, and and with the Joker, you do kind of have to reference Robinson as well. So to just reference Kane is a bit like, yeah, I was a bit, Unless I was it a bit was disappointed no in in general because it's become a thing um, down the years um, and more and more recently that like it's a very specific thing to Gotham City where every location and every street in Gotham is named after someone notable who's worked on Batman. And I think I caught a Nolan at one point, but I don't oh, even really? know if that was deliberate because there were barely any others. And even down to the fact that the two cops, you know, why were they not given the names of recognisable Gotham cops? Why was it not Bullock and Flass or something like that? You know, it's <laughs> like, it's not like you're not saying that these are these movie, characters. Seth. This is a real adult movie. <laughs> we, don't need no. to have, we don't need to have comic book names. Um, I think earlier, Joe, you might have said accidentally said Alec Baldwin played the dad. But it was I, I was going to give Joe the opportunity to... to explain to people that that was a joke. Yeah, it was a joke. Yeah, oh, it, it got it, got it. Okay. <laughs> I just got such strong Alec Baldwin vibes. Well, you know, it was it was originally Alec Baldwin who was going to play that character. Yeah, but it, so. like I got I I just when he was doing that ranting in the toilet, I was like, oh, it's almost as if I I'm hearing that voicemail message play all over again. <laughs> <laughs> Here, okay, Alec Baldwin's have... berating one of his children. I have two little things, quibbles, I don't know. Do you guys think that, to me it was odd that they suggested that a, that sort of like this rent-a-clown thing they were doing was a clock-in, clock-out job? That to me seems like that'd be a flat-rate <laughs> job. I was confused about how the hourly system of that worked. Mm. Um, and yeah, then, you'd think they'd be. That felt like a very strange business anyway, though, right? <laughs> Very, yeah, there that's true. Who knows? Bunch of guys that are all in the dressing room at the same time getting dressed. Wait, right, why were they always us. there at the same time? Like, did they every day they had a clown job? It just seems like it would be more parceled out. Yeah. Somehow, rather than everyone comes in nine to five and just sits there until there's a clown job. I don't know. I had questions about this. Two, I thought it was so strange that when he went to get his mom's medical records the scene with brian tyree henry yes he was like mm. oh let me just read out the file yeah, i will read yeah. out any information and then after i've read it all out be like oh by the way i'm not oh, allowed way, to give, give this out and i was like you just read the entire file 
and I was, I mean, A, you're just not, medical records are some of our most protected records. Like, you can't do that yeah. in general. But even if it's supposed to be a guy that's breaking the rules, then all of a sudden for him to be like, oh, by the way, I can't give this out. Like, what is happening? It was another one of those examples of things happen. People don't act like people act so that things that the film wants to happen can happen. And it was just coming back to kind of what we were saying about, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think this is a, a bad film in the sense of being an incompetent film. And we could talk about all the kind of thematic or political things that annoy us about it, but that's separate from how it functions as a piece of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a piece of filmmaking, I think it has a lot of very well done stuff, but at a script level, it has huge glaring flaws that are all of these moments that we've talked about and they are that just purely as a film they are the biggest problems with it and they are the things that would stop me from saying that it is this kind of immensely stylish masterpiece which is kind of what i expected it to be um and those are the points at which it kind of fails on a competence level you see uh, now though I'm I'm falling into his trap i'm sat here thinking yeah that Brian Terry Henry scene did seem so absurd just as absurd as the Zazy Beat stuff. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't real. And he, this stuff with Bruce at the at the gate also felt absurd. Maybe that wasn't. Maybe he is his son. Uh, but yeah, we just needed to end with a little top spinning so that we would all know whether to question <laughs> the reality. I will say, as a point of just like interest for listeners, I hadn't seen this in many reviews, but I saw somebody on Twitter tie this into as an as an uh, like an inspiration point there was a real life thing it's listed on wikipedia as the 1984 new york mm. city subway shooting that seems to have been a huge inspiration point for this so it was in this case it was a guy a white guy his name is bernard gotez and he had been a couple years earlier he had been jumped by a group of kids of color so you know held up in some way and so he already sort of had this prejudice he was on the subway there were four black teenagers that either were panhandling or messing with him in some way and he just randomly he shot all four of them and this was like a huge case i had never heard of this but this was like a huge case and it sort of changed the way crime was in the city he was initially held up as like a hero for being the subway vigilante and then it all this stuff came about out about him being very racist and then public opinion turned against him anyway it seems Mm. to have been a huge inspiration point for this movie and especially obviously the subway scene so just as a Point of American history. If you want to learn more about that, I I didn't know about this, and I was glad that I read about it on Twitter. Hmm. Yeah, I I read about that bit when the film was when the first reports about the film were coming out, and I'll be honest, I find it a bit. I'm a, I'm a bit confused why it is such a source of inspiration. Well, it's just interesting too that the movie. You know, we talked about the race things before, but if the movie seems yeah. to have drawn inspiration from a white guy. I don't think any of the four kids were killed, but they some of them were very seriously and permanently injured. But, you know, a white man shooting black teenagers for a racially motivated crime then gets transformed into this story of, like, a white man killing three white men. I don't know. It's just, again, it's a part of the conversation that it's unclear whether the film is intentionally trying to have, but it's, you know, another piece of that. Yeah, I, I just think it adds further further confusion to the, to the plot, to be honest. <laughs> Ultimately, how I really come out is... For all of the kind of the the discourse beforehand, and for all of the kind of chatter that it's inspired, um, I I just ultimately I don't think it ends up warranting a lot of that in in both directions, both the sort of the the hand wringing fears of which I'll I'll hold my hands up to having been a part, and the just the insane uh, positivity coming out of of Venice. I mean, like just genuinely from a point of view of. I came out of the film finding myself wondering 
what warranted a seven-minute-long round of applause? And I don't mean the overall quality of the film. I mean specifically because of how it ended. Like You would think to inspire that kind of reaction, it would usually be something specific about the end of a film that would leave people on that high. And I just... I just don't get it. I just think it's fine. It's a it's a film. It exists. I actually think, aside from all the discourse around it, we'll probably have forgotten about it in a few years. To be honest, the only the only thing I will say slightly connected to that is um, I, I I've not been mass. I've not been keen on the way that there's been some questioning basically of like did the pe- did the critics in venice actually like it and do these people who like li- who liked who who have come out publicly and said i liked this movie d- did they get it wrong and are they going to check their opinions because the the backlash seems to have been so strong i i, I just i don't like that approach to things. I'm sure people who liked the movie did really like it and had a great experience watching the movie. And maybe it was partly due to the festival screening uh, environment. And maybe some people have been in great screenings where, you know, you know, or have just gone in with certain expectations that were different to mine and they were met. I, I don't like impugning people's motives for why they oh i'm not impugning people's motives no no and i'm not i'm not i'm not accusing you (laughs) i'm not accusing you of this i what i'm saying is i think critics who liked the movie probably liked the movie now they might revisit it in years time as i have done with lots of movies and change their mind i might revisit this in a couple of years time with a you know with a different perspective and with different expectations and get more out of it than i got out the first time i think you just have to you have to trust people's reactions the only people's reactions who you shouldn't trust are the people who've made their mind up going in like you know your snyder bros who are already convinced that this is going to be the greatest movie of all time they're, they're, they're the only people's opinions that you should question. Anyone else, if they've seen the movie and they've formed an opinion, just trust it. Even if it's not the same as yours, fine. But, um, I mean, Seb and I will never understand why the other feels the way they do about Spider-Man Far From Home. But um, I'd, I'd like to think that we at least vaguely respect that. <laughs> respect each other's opinion there you know joker it does succeed at being different you can't not give it that like it's not a lie that it is a very grounded comic book movie even compared to the nolan movies which that was also their claim to fame like it does succeed at saying this is you know this is how real people this is how violence sort of you know looks in real life it's not comic booky so if that's a thing that you're looking for then yeah i totally get why this would be movie to Mm. speak to to me it just falls into the category of how we as a culture if something is violent and cynical and masculine you know in general that that tends to automatically be assumed to be better than things that don't have those qualities to me the breaking point like to me joker i'm neutral on to me the breaking point movie which this would be a whole other podcast but that's logan i had all the (laughs) the Mm. insane negative reactions like emotionally devastated not in an effective way all of that was logan so i feel like i already processed all that and now I'm like, Joker, whatever, who cares? Just not for me. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, hearing you talk around the violence and, you know, the the macho Scorsese masculinity in this movie makes me understand more why you didn't enjoy Logan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, again, it's like, it's not, that stuff isn't inherently bad, and I don't even think it's inherently bad that people like it. The part that bothers me is when that stuff gets up, that stuff which is just as tropey and genre-y and formulaic and repetitive as any other genre, you know, romantic comedies, musicals, whatever it may be, 
I'm fine with all, you know, genres embracing their tropes. What annoys me is when certain genres are automatically held up as being better than others, as opposed to saying these things are all different and they, you know, there's a range of quality within each of these genres. That's what I would push for. Um, but yeah, people liking Joker, cool. That's fine. <laughs> and this this movie is, I think it's tracking for like a 90 million opening in the US, which if, if it hits that, it's going to break the um, October opening weekend record that Venom set last year. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, so there, there is, Hollywood is going to take certain lessons from this. I hope the lesson they take is it's we've got these comic book properties we can take them and treat them in different ways the marvel cinematic universe is ongoing but could we could we take a character and you know hand it to a certain filmmaker and a certain actor and do something different with it feed it through a different kind of machine than the machine that most of these comic book movies are, uh, are fed through because whilst i love the mcu and and i personally believe there's a lot more variety within that than a lot of people do they do still have, you know, some degree of homogeneity. Um, and even, you know, like how how different is Spider-Man Far From Home from Spider-Man 2? On a quality level, I think there's a lot. But, you know, they're still they're still the same kind of thing, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And, you can, and, and Joker is undeniably a different way of treating this comic book property. I hope that's the lesson that Hollywood learns. And you know, like I, I kind of get the impression I'm starting to get a bit more enthusiastic about what Feige's doing on Disney plus. Cause it sounds like that potentially we're going to see a different thing through that, through the shows that they're doing there. Um, but you know, if the, if this means that, I don't know, like uh, an, an interesting director and an interesting actor goes, we'd love to take that character or we'd love to take that concept um, and just go off and do something weird with it. And, you know, that might be, that might be something like, again, like aping, um, aping a a director like Scorsese, or it might be that someone goes, I want to take Silver Surfer and I want to do some of that weird cosmic stuff that we Mm -hmm. see in the comics. And that doesn't feed into a universe and just goes out there and does some, trippy sci-fi stuff that that is not the kind of the same sci-fi lens that we see with um that we see with something like guardians of the galaxy you know could we could we get like a a a tarantino type of film out of comic uh, comic book material could Could we we... take the the flash supergirl crossover musical episode and make it a big screen musical oh god i mean yeah a superhero musical let's do that you know that's that's what i hope hollywood takes from this that we've got this amazing ip that we could be taking risks with let's take some risks amen i think we're definitely done now so yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay well fortunately uh the closing segment um is is one that's got like 10 questions in it so it's going to go on for absolutely ages so (laughs) (laughs) i hope you're ready for it um we'll be quick we'll do speed round (laughs) Uh, i'm just happy not to be changing nappies right now i'm so here for all of this yeah i I got that impression um (laughs) so yeah so this is uh, despite the absence of james we have got a game to play uh partly suggested by james and then i sort of had to refine the suggestion uh based on the reality of of putting it together um, as we know, the film, uh, as we've discussed at length, uh, contained a joke stolen from the late great British comedian Bob Monkhouse. 
Um, I meant to look up where the other joke came from because I'm sure that was stolen from somewhere else as well. Uh, I was disappointed that in the context of the film, it was still presented as a joke that people didn't find funny, even though it's it is really funny. Uh, Let if me you... just say, if the if the terrible reign of Cunningham was still ongoing, Monkhouse Corner would have been significantly shorter. Well, unfortunately, this final game <laughs> is called Pod Monkhouse. Um, Great. We are, we are continuing to beat this into the ground. Uh, we're going to play a game where I'm going to give you each five one-line jokes and you have to tell me if you think they are by Bob Monkhouse or by somebody else. Uh, if you think they're by somebody else and you want to have a go at guessing who they are and you get it right, you'll get an extra point. Um, Caroline, do you know who Bob Monkhouse is? Only because Seb explained it to me the last time I was on the podcast, so I am frequently or recently well versed. You you are at a bit of a disadvantage with this one, but it's okay. Uh, I also am not. I really don't know anything about comedy, but I am always game for trying things. So okay. Um, well, just 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 to remind you to sort of to get you in the the flavour of of what a Bob Monkhouse joke sounds like. The joke was, of course, uh, everybody laughed at me when I said I was going to be a stand up comedian. Well, they're not laughing now. Um, so. Caroline, actually, we'll come to you first mm-hmm. with the first one of the five. So you've got five each, and I don't have any for sudden death. So if it's a draw, it is just going to have to be a draw. Great. Uh, which I know Americans don't like, but there we go. Uh, so the oh, first one, Seb. Caroline, for you is, I want to die peacefully in my sleep like my father, not screaming and terrified like his passengers. Uh, it's very funny. I think not Monk. What's his name? Monkhouse. Bob Monkhouse. <laughs> Unfortunately, that was Bob Monkhouse. Oh, okay, okay. So there's a dark <laughs> sense of humor here. Is what I'm getting. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I have kleptomania, but when it gets bad, I take something for it. Oh, I'm gonna go that that is Bob. That's not Bob. Oh, that is no. that is my fellow Scouser Doddy himself, Ken Dodd. Ah. Uh. Okay, uh, Caroline. Mm-hmm. To get off the mark. My mother-in-law fell down a wishing well. I was amazed. I never knew they worked. Yes, Bob. Yes, it's Bob. It's not Bob. It's Les Dawson. (laughs) I think I would have got both of Caroline's right, but obviously the (laughs) listeners will never believe that. No. All right then, Joe, come on. Let's see if you can score the first point. My father only hit me once, but he used a Volvo. That sounds like Bob. That is Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Caroline. Mm-hmm. How come Miss Universe is only ever won by people from Earth? Mm, I think not Bob. I think not Bob as well. It's not Bob. Um, I wouldn't expect you to guess the name of who this is because I doubt you've heard of him in the in the US. Uh, it's Ross Noble. I would have thought that would be an older joke. Ross Noble is a is a recent comedian, yeah. but uh, but apparently that is attributed to Ross Noble. Okay, so the scores are one one after. Uh... Oh no, wait! You're not level on questions, are you? I need to level up <laughs> Joe with questions first. Got to count them. Okay, Joe. A lady with a clipboard stopped me in the street the other day. She said, "Can you spare a few minutes for cancer research?" I said, "All right, but we won't get much done." Not Bob. You got any idea about who it is? Uh no, no but idea. It was Jimmy Carr. But you do get the point okay. anyway. So it's two one to Joe after three each. So you've each got two left. Oh gosh, okay, I'm ready. Caroline. <laughs> I'm sure wherever my father is, he's looking down on us. He's not dead, just very condescending. <laughs> These good. are good jokes. I will go yes, Bob. Yeah, I think that's Bob. It's not. It's oh. it's it's even more recent. It's Jack Whitehall. Oh wow. Yeah. 
didn't know he'd actually written any funny jokes, but there you go. <laughs> Jack, oh, Jack Whitehall, by the way, is also one of the, well, I, I, you don't know what you can say anymore, crowd. Yeah. But he right. was good in Good Omens. I'm Googling all of these people as you say them, because I can picture some British comedians in my head, but I don't know all their names. I definitely recognize this guy. If you have to Google one so far, it's Ross Noble. I just did. Well, I just am yeah. trying to see pictures of their faces to see if I recognize yeah, v- them. Visually, he is the most satisfying. <laughs> okay, Joe, this is to go into a 3-1 lead and thus an unassailable 3-1 oh, lead with oh, only one God. question each left. I tend to sleep in the nude, which isn't a bad thing, except for maybe on those long flights. Bob. It is Bob. Yes. 3-1 to Joe. Let's do the last two anyway. Caroline, I came home and found that my son was taking drugs. My very best ones, too. Uh, no. Bob. Not Bob. Not Bob. It is Bob. No. (laughs) Really? Yeah. This is the thing, there were some surprising... See, okay, so I'll tell you that that. that James' original concept for this quiz was that it would just be Bob Monkhouse or Joker because he'd discovered that there were some surprisingly dark Bob Monkhouse jokes. Oh, I see. Sure, sure. Yeah, they were feeling dark. Yeah, you can't actually... The Joker doesn't actually tell jokes very often, so I couldn't find enough actual jokes by the Joker. Anyway, just for the last one, just to round it off, Joe, see if you can get a a 4-1 scoreline. Have you heard the one about two aerials meeting on a roof, falling in love and getting married? The ceremony was rubbish, but the reception was brilliant. Bob. No, it's Tommy Cooper. Uh-huh. Had to get a Tommy Cooper one in there. I did figure out that Jack Whitehall was in Good Omens, and that's why I recognised his face. I was going to say, did you, did, did you watch Good Omens? Because you I were did, yeah. from that. Yeah. Well, there, there you go. go. Well, I learned something at least. You know what I mean? I came away from this knowing more British comedians <laughs> besides that guy that wears the top hat and then was on Great British Bake Off. Do you know what I'm talking about? Noel? Noel Oh, Noel Field. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'll have to become a thing, Caroline. I'm going to teach you more about British comedy. Please do. Um, in, in much the same way as we taught Joe about comics. That's just We're going to teach you about comics of a different kind. There we go. <laughs> Whoa! Mm. Sounds like you should be in the stand-up. <laughs> right. Um, well, thank you very much for joining us once again, Caroline. Anytime. And thanks, Joe, for, for abandoning your newborn child for a little <laughs> while and, and yeah. coming back. I'm sure she's fine. Are we are we going to hear you again at some point? Do you think? Yeah, can this I, year? Can I can only imagine. We, we might get you back for the. There's no more new releases, but we might get you back for the awards. Uh, yeah, in some capacity. I've been I've been listening along. Uh, I plan to I plan to try and watch the movies that you've watched in my absence. But I mean, it. I, I watched Alita. I did watch Alita, so I could listen to your uh, to to you guys chatting about that, which I thought was perfectly fine and can't believe that James managed to get get you to cover it this quickly on the podcast um, I, I couldn't work up the energy to watch Dark Knight Rises again because it's bad uh, but I did appreciate that you you kind of figured that out on the podcast between you uh, and uh, and and yeah I think uh, I haven't listened to the Fantastic Four episode yet with Steve um, so I might watch Silver Surfer before that because those movies um kind of rush over my head and I'll barely even realise I'm watching them. Pretty <laughs> so much. Maybe, yeah. yeah. So they, they, so they're the, good ones the... for watching while, you, um, while you've got a sleeping baby, actually. Absolutely. And by yeah. the time we get to the awards, yeah, hopefully I, I can actually play a part in that. Yeah. 
Well, if you have enjoyed this episode, thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode and you haven't already, then please consider subscribing. You can find us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Player FM, Overcast, Google, or your podcast app of choice. You can find a full searchable index of every episode at cinematicuniverse.com, along with all the subscription feed links and a big archive of features and reviews. If you're a subscriber who likes the show, please consider leaving us a rating and ideally a review on your podcast platform. It really does help us. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematicuniverse, which helps us to get the podcast edited and produced and convince our families that the show isn't a waste of time. If you back us on there, you get to hear episodes ad-free and sometimes early, as well as bonus material. Thanks to Brendan Roberts for being a top backer and to Nicholas Bravada for joining the fold since the last episode. You can buy our merchandise at cinematicu.redbubble.com, get in touch with us on Facebook, on Twitter at cine underscore verse, or with an email to editorial at cinematicuniverse.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye!